Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 2, Episode 4 proper, 5 total of 8 in total. Uh, I was talking to someone last night, (laughs) Gary Atwell from Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, who said there's a history podcast he was listening to that had nine-hour episodes about World War I. So anyways, uh, this one's not going to be nine hours. Um, but this is uh, season two. We've been talking about Flannery O'Connor's short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, published in 1965, just after her death in August of 1964. So this is her, um, you know, her... her her final work, uh, other than the things that were collected in her collected stories, which we also have, you know, Whitney's using that volume. I'm using the actual um, self-contained, everything that rises must, must converge. And so uh, we've been talking about Flannery O'Connor, and we've talked through six of her stories already. Today we're just going to do one. It's called The Lame Shall Enter First. It's the longest story in the, in the collection, and I think it's almost as long or maybe a little longer than The Displaced Person. So she has two really long stories, one in each collection. And, um, yeah, we'll talk about its length. We'll talk about, you know, its characters and, and just everything involved in it. So, um the lame shall enter first. Whitney, get us started. What 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 is there to start with for the lame shall enter first? Well, I'll start with the title because I think O'Connor has really strong titles. They resonate. They're intriguing. They pretty much all capture the most important theme of the story perfectly. So mm-hmm. I'll start with the title. The word lame. First of all, that word in the modern world is almost never used except for a slang, I think. Right. The denotation of the word lame versus like the modern connotation, like you said, is is a slang kind of like, oh, that's lame, that's that's not good, or that's that's not cool or something like that. Yeah, I almost think of it partly as boring. Mm, it almost yeah, has that kind yeah. of connotation too. Um so I was thinking, wow, okay, if I were to teach this story to a modern group of students, I think they would think of that connotation of the word first and primarily, and then there would be a lot of, like, joking associated with the title, maybe. You know, I can just imagine a bunch of students, like, letting someone else go into the classroom and saying, you know, the lame shall enter first, you know, if I were mm-hmm. teaching the story. Um, but the word lame became slang in a way that something like, the word retarded became slang as an insult. And it's funny that the word lame hasn't been reclaimed or like treated as something that really shouldn't be said, I think in the same way. But anyway, something about that, that lame has gone from meaning physically handicapped to meaning um, uncool, just it makes me think about the title and its meaning and this idea that the uncool would enter the kingdom of heaven first. Maybe that's also true. Yeah, I like that comment, um, especially because this idea of like people entering heaven in, in an order uh, shows up in the story of Revelation, which is going to be the last story we talk about. Um, but just that that concept, I think, is... It is a biblical concept. There's this idea of the, you know, the the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Um, that's you know Jesus's 
uh, ordering of it. Um, and the concept of lameness in the story is fascinating because it can look like a lot of different things. Um, weakness can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be a physical handicap per se. In fact, the, the character with a physical handicap in this story seems fierce and powerful in a, in a sense. Um, that lameness can just be any form of weakness or meekness or poorness of spirit or something like that. Like little Norton. I think we were calling him Nelson the last time, yeah. but those names no. are so similar in my mind. Nelson is in, uh, the artificial yes, N word. Exactly. And it's, uh, yeah, also kind of a similar dynamic in some ways with the characters in that story. Kind of like, so. um, the idea of, um, disowning your own, you yeah. know, like disowning your family. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, um, that idea that weakness is not seen by God in the same way as it's seen in earthly terms, that God sees our shows of strength as actual weaknesses sometimes, um, because they're, they're based on an artificial pride that's not accurate, and our weaknesses can be our strengths um, through God. Yeah, and so, you know... Like Whitney was saying, the, the titles are so strong uh, for all these stories, but especially, I, th- I think, this concept of, like, like some of them set you up, and some of them, some of them have more of a mystery to them. Um, for example, um, Everything That Rises Must Converge, I think, is, is more mysterious. Like, I, I don't know if the story explains the title, no, like, you have to infer a lot with that right. title. And, and like, I've always inferred that that title has to do with if people rose to equality so that all races were equal, they were going to start to, like, blend together and become similar or the same. Yeah. Um, but then you have to really think about how that applies to what happens in the story. It's not a one-to-one obvious interplay. Mm. And so uh, just that concept of like the all, all the titles that she has you know we've talked about everything the rise must converge and greenleaf and view of the woods the enduring chill the comforts of home and judgment day and to me the lame shall enter first really she's got two uh stories everything that rise must converge and this one where the this the title is a sentence and um you know, we talked a little bit about where the uh, the title for Everything That Rise and Must Converge uh, came from. We talked a little bit about it in the episode about the story, but we're going to talk about that again in the, the, the Omega episode, <laughs> the final episode. And um, the Lamb Shillinger first actually comes from two places, if, if I'm finding it right on, <laughs> on the Internet. Um, but just this concept of um, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Um, comes from Luke chapter 16, it looks like, um, although I'm not seeing it. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm struggling here trying to do th- two things at once. But um, but just that concept of uh, the lame shall enter first, the last shall be first. Um, and so, you know, Jesus setting up this order, like I said, he has an order, and then I think it's human nature for us to want to have an order for ourselves, almost always <laughs> with ourselves first. <laughs> and so um, this story is, 
it's just really, it's got a lot of discussion in it about kind of what makes someone good. Um, and so I guess that's like a, a central question for, for that. And also, um, you know, the, the, the reference is biblical referring to the lamb shall enter heaven first, but I don't think the story necessarily goes just down one path. I think there's a, a double meaning here in terms of the lame shall enter heaven first, but the lame can also enter hell first. And we'll talk about that with Rufus Johnson as we get to him. Yeah, it makes me think also of First Corinthians one twenty seven, which says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Yes. Which yes. seems connected particularly to... Um, Shepherd, you know, is wise in his own eyes. Um, yes. And he thinks he's wiser than both Johnson and Norton. And in the end, I think they're both wiser than he is. Yeah, and, and, and that God reveals things to children that he keeps hidden from the wisest of, of men and women. Yeah, and um, it also goes on to say God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Yeah. And it's true from the world's perspective, you know. Shepherd is educated, um, fairly well employed. Um, he has it much more together than obviously his son, who's still a little kid, but also Rufus Johnson is just a, a mess of a human being, yeah. but they both are more aware of the truth mm. than he is mm. like that, that moment when um, Johnson says that Shepard may be good, but he's wrong. Yes. He ain't right. Yeah. <laughs> he may be good, but he ain't right. And that idea that if you don't, have it right about God, everything you're doing is going to get all twisted up, even if it's a, a good thing to do. Like, yeah. you might be helping the poor, mm-hmm. or you might be, you know, doing something worthwhile and valuable kind of in and of itself, but your motives are going to twist it if you don't have the right knowledge of God. Right. Like A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about a man is what he believes about God. Mm-hmm. And that is a real blow to our modern sense of yes. individuality and individual mm. importance and self-actualization, mm. yeah. I guess. Yeah. So this story, when I read it the first time, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever read. Um, and it, it is funny. Like, reading it back, it, it is hysterically funny. Where are the funniest parts, in your opinion? So, well, uh, let, let me just start at the beginning. So, Shepard is a widower. His wife has been uh, dead approximately a year. And then Norton is, his, I think he's supposed to be 10 years old son. Yeah. And he's sitting in the kitchen eating, <laughs> eating like, out of a single-serving cereal box not he didn't even pour it in a bowl he just is still eating the cereal from the box and did he put the milk in it's like soggy put the milk in the box yeah i i could not believe that existed in the 50s i thought that was the kind of thing we would only have now this extremely pre-packaged like little tiny packages of food um wow you know it one of the articles that um, we read, which actually was really helpful, um, called Flannery O'Connor's The Lame Shall Enter First by Frederick Assals. But it mentioned the cereal and yeah. said that he thinks that cereal, that prepackaged sake cereal, is supposed to represent the philosophy that Shepard is offering, Ooh. that it's just prepackaged sagi, interesting, pseudo intellectual, pseudo psychological, mm-hmm. weak kind of yeah. unappealing nonsense. Well, and that it's really ultimately only nourishing him. Yeah, and know? barely mm-hmm. even him. Yeah. yeah, He's not even 
giving his son this little package of cereal. He's just Ooh, letting his son fend for himself and yeah. get all this stale cake for breakfast. So, so, okay, cake for breakfast sounds like a dream. It's really more like a nightmare. But this is, this is one of the most hilarious, interesting concoctions. I, <laughs> I can't believe that anyone would actually do this. That's part of what made it so funny. When he went for the ketchup. So so let me set it up. He he brings out the stale cake. Then it, immediately he gets the peanut butter. It said, well, <laughs> on the wrong page. Um, it says, um, the boy approached the bar with a jar of peanut butter under his arm, a plate of, with a quarter of a small chocolate cake on it in one hand and the ketchup bottle in the other. So much cake, too. Well, and I'm thinking, like, even if it's like a, yeah, like a personal cake, like, like the kind of cake you would get for someone's birthday that's really meant to be, like, eaten by three or four people, you know, it, it, it's still, it is a big hunk of cake. Like, What to, if it's a full-size cake? Well... It does say it does say a quarter of a small. Chocolate okay, cake. good, good. That but, makes me feel a little bit better. But I mean, then I'm the thinking it's like it again. I, I'm thinking it's like a six inch in diameter cake, or maybe I don't think it could be much smaller than that. But like, almost like a a huge cupcake. Well, even eating a a quarter of a huge cupcake would be a lot, especially because we're talking about probably a layer cake and not just like you know one one layer of a it cupcake. It doesn't need anything added. We'll put it that way. Well, except it's stale. And so he has the peanut butter. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe he's going to get the peanut butter with the cake. But I was like, what's the ketchup for? Right. I mean. It, it couldn't possibly it, yeah, be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, now it says, uh, where am I? The, the boy picked up. Okay. 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 Here we go. Um, yeah. Okay. Sorry. He climbed up on the stool and began to spread peanut butter on the cake. And I just wrote the word gross. Now, peanut butter on a breakfast thing, like, say, a waffle, that sounds like my kind of breakfast. Um, or toast or something. Whitney's like, no, that's no, a lunch thing. No, I just keep thinking about the ketchup. I know. And I keep thinking about how bad ketchup and peanut butter are together. Ugh. And how bad ketchup and chocolate are together. Mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. get over it. So it says... He had very large round ears that leaned away from his head and he seemed to pull his eyes slightly too far and, and seemed to pull his eyes slightly too far apart. His shirt was green but so faded that the cowboy charging across the front was of it was only a shadow. Also sounds a little bit like neglect to me. Like yes. he's just not well cared for. He doesn't get nice new things. You know, you know who else wears a cowboy shirt? Joy Holga and Good Country People. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but um, I, I still want to get to the catch up here. So um, uh, Shepard is saying, oh, I saw Rufus Johnson yesterday. Like, I don't, I don't know that Norton knows Rufus. I think that Shepard has just maybe talked about Rufus yeah. at home to Norton. Which is kind of sad to think that, this is a little boy, and you're going to come home and be like, I met a fascinating little boy at work, you know. Clearly, yeah. he could not have been talking about Rufus to Norton without making Norton feel like he liked Rufus more than exactly. him. I mean, it's impossible because he's so obsessed with Rufus. And he goes out of his way to volunteer his time to get to spend more time with, with delinquent boys like Rufus while actually neglecting his own child. And so... 
here he is eating his cereal out of its prepackaged little onesie, you know, box. And here's Norton putting peanut butter and ketchup on the cake. It says, um, the boy picked up the piece of chocolate cake and began to gnaw it from one corner. So he's got the peanut butter on it at this point. Oh, and he picks it up with his hand and just yeah. starts eating it. That's yeah. that's not good either. No, that's that's uh, that's not. Let's just say if you want to be in really good health, that is not a, a habit you want to start. I mean, he's ten years old yeah. and he's not using a fork. Yeah. Now maybe he's never used a fork, or maybe he's just given up on using forks because his mom died. Which we'll talk. We'll talk about the mom being dead, and you know extensively in a few moments. But uh, it's, it says, Norton, do you have any idea of what it means to share? And it says a flicker of attention. Some of it's yours, Norton said. <laughs> Some of it's his. Shepard said heavily. It was hopeless. Almost any fault would have been preferable to selfishness, a violent temper, even a tendency to lie, which ironically is exactly what Rufus Johnson has. He has a violent temper temper and a tendency to lie. And it proves unbearable, yes. as it turns out. And then it says, the child turned the bottle of ketchup upside down and began thumping ketchup onto the cake. And at that point, it was like, I wanted to just eat this story. Like the way that, the way that Rufus eats from the Bible, it's like I loved the story so much at that point because of how grotesque that was and how much I love ketchup and peanut butter and chocolate cake and how disgusting the three of them would be together. It it just it, it's like from that point on, anything that happened in this story was going to be good because it's like if if that's the first joke you tell in a stand up routine. This is going to be a good night. I'm going to be laughing, you know, through the aisles. And, and it sets up really succinctly how Shepard is not taking great care of his son. He's just mm-hmm. sitting here watching this. He's eating stale, unhealthy, decadent, strange food in a messy way. And his father's not intervening in any sense. Mm-hmm. And then his instead, Shepard is harping on this fact that Rufus has eaten out of a garbage can and he keeps saying I can't see a child eating out of garbage cans Rufus doesn't get to eat cake with peanut butter for breakfast and you just realize from the beginning that he just can't see his son right in front of him exactly because I mean not to say that his son's eating out of the garbage can but this is the next worst thing in a a sense eating stale Like, incredibly unhealthy, disgusting combinations of food for breakfast. If you said, oh, I ate, like, I ate garbage yesterday, you wouldn't mean that you literally pulled things out of the garbage George Costanza style. Um, Although, it was on a doily, and it was at the top of the garbage. I I can sympathize with George's, don't waste that, but I'm guessing there was another eclair. Like, it seemed like they had a spread. So. He wanted to eat it on principle. Well, yeah. You don't, you yeah, don't waste a whole eclair. You're right. <laughs> and George, is, George Costanza is, is like one of these hollow leg people. Like, he, he, he isn't skinny, but he like he'll eat every appetizer <laughs> off of every tray. He's a man of appetites, I yes, think Kramer yes. says about him. <laughs> so, you know, here's Norton, a George Costanza in the making. But <laughs> <laughs> really, maybe he is. But, um,. But Norton, Norton eats 
this cake that, that is like what we would consider, oh, I just total garbage yesterday. Yeah, eating cake for breakfast. That's, that's what I would be, be implying if I said I ate like garbage. Now, the, the contrast is already here, Rufus and Norton, right? The real son and the one he wishes was his son. Now, oh gosh, there's so much to this story. That's why we're doing it by itself. But just the concept of here's, here's Shepard, who is not being a shepherd to his son, and yet he wants to take on another sheep. Because he's such a good shepherd. I mean, you know, and, and it's misspelled Shepard uh, instead of shepherd, you know, H-E-R-D. Go. Oh. I thought you, <laughs> Sorry. I thought you were going to say I something. was leaning toward the microphone eagerly, I guess. Um, yeah, I the fact that he wants to take on Rufus as a, as a sheep, as a son, because he's smart. And he thinks that yes. Norton is... He doesn't think Norton is dumb he thinks Horton is average and that's not good enough for him yes my son shouldn't have to be average I just read a parenting book recently um, by a child psychologist named Wendy Mogul and she said that she has parents coming to her all the time especially these are educated affluent parents who think that their children have learning disabilities when really they're average because they think well how could my child be average it must be a diagnosable, treatable problem. And she says, no, you know, some kids are average. Maybe your kid's average at math or average at reading, and they're aghast at the concept of average. And I think Shepard is as well. And he thinks that it's not worth his time, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he, it's like he thinks Rufus Johnson is interestingly lame with that club foot. He thinks that his son is lame in a boring way like the modern use of lame like he's just so lame like he doesn't have anything to offer and in fact at the top of the third page of the story um shepherd says how would you like to belong to a family like rufus johnson's you know Mm -hmm. he had to live in a shack um he didn't have any electricity his mother's in jail and norton says i don't know lamely (laughs) but i think he does think his son is lame in that modern yeah. sense of the word, um, thinks the son has nothing to offer. And God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And poor little boy, you said that you thought this was the funniest story of hers that you'd read. Yeah. I thought it was the saddest story of hers that I'd read as well because I almost started crying on this page. Even though it's, it's, it is depicted in the most absurd, grotesque way possible, but it's still so sad when suddenly it kind of sinks in as Shepard keeps saying, well, at least your mom's not in the state penitentiary. It sinks into Norton that if his mom was in the state penitentiary, she'd still be alive. And he starts just sobbing, crying. And it just broke my heart to think about him sobbing, crying. And there's no one to go comfort him. He's just alone. His father has contempt for his, I'm starting to cry now thinking about it. His father has contempt for his tears. He needs, he needs someone to love him. Yes. And then he throws up everywhere. I think he just like sobbed, sobbed his food back up. It's yeah. so sad. Well, you bring up a great point about this story. And I mean, let me, let me clarify what is funny. Like, I don't think it's, well, I did, I thought it was funny that he threw up because it was yes. like, oh, th- that, that's it's portrayed funny. 
the, the beauty of humor is using the least likely thing you think could happen, putting ketchup on a cake, and then following it with the most likely thing you would ha- think would happen, <laughs> which is throwing up that. And both things are equally surprising. And to me, it's like that's the beauty of Flannery O'Connor's ability to be funny is she, she gives us like the predictably thing, the predictable thing that, that, that somehow we weren't expecting the predictable, the misfit <laughs> to kill a family who's just killed another family and escaped prison for killing his own family. Like these, these things that are utterly predictable and yet are shocking, not because, oh my gosh, this could never have happened, but because like, why did I not see it coming? Right. It's, it's like we're laughing at ourselves for thinking like, (laughs) I should have known that was going to happen, you know? Um, and, and to me, just the, the way the humor works in this is based almost entirely upon shepherds, um, free and discourse, free, free and direct discourse that we get. Like we get this interior monologue of a narration yeah. The boy's future was written on his face, written in his face. He would be a banker. No, worse. He would operate a small loan company. <laughs> that's the worst thing imaginable. It's not going to jail like Rufus yeah. is going. Because that at least is extreme. Like He's going to be mediocre. He's going to be average. And I think that, you know, it, I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller about um, the rich man and Lazarus. And he was talking about if you are defining yourself by something other than your faith in Christ, you are likely to judge someone who is the opposite of what you are. If you're incredibly hardworking, you're, you're m- much more likely to get upset with people who are lazy. If you're incredibly um, thrifty, you're, you're likely to get upset with people who are, who are very profligate or frivolous. And, and, um, or if you're very physically fit, very likely to get upset with people who are really out of shape. And, you know, I, 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 I totally understand that because I've been judgmental of every person that was the, the opposite of me. And then when I figured out I was being judgmental and felt guilty, then I felt judgmental of the people that were still judgmental in the way that I was. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a never-ending, yeah. um, it's a never-ending humility and and that's where I think the poor like poverty of spirit comes from from the mm-hmm. Beatitudes, and, and we'll talk about that in this story. But um, just that concept of if you are looking at people as possible, you know, possible cases for you to judge, you will intensely feed your own egotism with whatever you naturally excel at, and so yeah. so Shepherd naturally excels at. Um, being selfless with his time. And we'll talk about, like, to what degree is he actually selfless? Mm-hmm. Um, because he isn't. He isn't selfless with his real food. He lets his kid eat stale cake with peanut butter and ketchup on it. So he, Yeah. It's, it's like, not selfless to give your time to something that you get a tremendous ego boost. Exactly. From, from doing, which is what he gets from helping the, the you know, juvenile penitentiary center yeah. or whatever. I mean, it's, I like what you said about judging people who are the opposite from you because I see, see Shepard doing that with Norton. I mean, he thinks of himself as selfless and intellectual. Yeah. And he sees Norton as being, you know, selfish and 
kind of intellectually uncurious. Yeah, kind of almost like pragmatic to yeah to a disgusting degree. Like he he's like, oh, I'm gonna count my money, and then I'm going to try and win a thousand dollars. Oh, you're so greedy. You're yes, so selfish yes. and kind of a. Um, and I mean, you know, I think as a reader, you're thinking, well, the kid's ten. You know, he just needs guidance. He doesn't need to be criticized and dismissed all the time. Like, if you really think he's turning into a greedy child, then try to give him more guidance, spend more time with him and things like that. But I also was thinking it adds another wrinkle to it when it's your own kid. Because when you're thinking about people out there in the world, like you said, the most most eco-boosting thing to do is to criticize people who are the opposite of yourself to be kind to your own weaknesses and vices and say those are understandable and be harsh on people who have different weaknesses and vices but when it's your own kid sometimes I think we start to want our kids to be everything we couldn't be so the area of our desire and insecurity becomes like a focus for how we want our kids to develop and I for example Shepard seems to have a great value for being ambitious. Um, you can achieve anything you want. You could be an astronaut. You right. could do anything. Um, he doesn't seem to have achieved anything extraordinarily remarkable. He runs the recreation department. <laughs> yes. And, like, coaches Little League, and he, you know, volunteers his time. He's not. I don't get the impression he's a professional psychologist. I think he just volunteers his time on the weekend is now, that right he does say about the priest right he says something like um i want to say he's he says something oh, like at least i have training at least i have training yeah, Unlo- right. yeah it says his credentials were less dubious than a priest he yes. had been trained for what he is doing right now don't don't get me wrong i do training sometimes like i think i think training is a good thing but i think training <laughs> It is a part of what being being educated is. Like, I might take a training that lasts three hours. Uh, right. It doesn't mean he has a degree. It might mean he went to a weekend or yes. a week of training to do that volunteer work that he's doing. And it that's how he seems to me. He seems like the kind of person who doesn't genuinely master anything. He just wants to, like have his entire office full of, like, certificates instead of one degree. Does that make sense? Yeah, and he has a lot. It says he has books and papers in his house, but it's funny that he seems to highlight the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's the book that gets mentioned (laughs) over and over again. Like, to imagine a man just reading the Encyclopedia and wanting to be a generalist, you know, wanting... I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it is kind of funny to think, He's so high on his own abilities, and we do get some hints that maybe his abilities... I mean, certainly, Rufus Johnson thinks nothing of this man's abilities and thinks mm-hmm. he's he's a fool and knows nothing, but anyway, I, just, I was thinking about the fact that he might be being so hard on Norton partly because... He wants Norton to achieve more than he's achieved. He wants to have the kind of son yes, who can be brilliant and yeah. impressive. And be an astronaut. I yeah, mean, because yeah. he's not, he values being brilliant and impressive, but yeah. he's not really achieved it for himself. And thinks Rufus is the type who might actually have the intellect to do something remarkable. And yeah. he wants to lay claim to that brilliance. I mean, it's significant that he doesn't want to help 
all the boys that he talks to on the weekends through his counseling, he wants to help the one who has a 140 IQ. He gets fixated right. on that one. Right. And we'll talk, we'll talk about just the, the interaction, you know, not the interaction, but the, the, like, the draw of Rufus. You know, why, why is Shepard so drawn to him? Um, but one of the things that, that, that is, you know, established pretty early in the story, but I think takes the entire story to really play out, is how much grief hasn't happened in this house because Shepard is ultimately married to his own nihilism. Like, he's married to his philosophy, and so he actually isn't grieving his wife's death. He, they, they've kept her room clear and clean, right? Like the, like the movie and novel Rebecca. And he hasn't slept in there. I mean, it's his room, too. I said he's sleeping, it says on this ascetic-looking bed. Yes. Um, he hasn't been sleeping in the room, which I guess could imply just he hasn't dealt with his grief one way or the other. He's just been right. shoving it aside. And I thought it was poignant and important that on the second page, um, it says, when his wife was living, they had often eaten outside, even breakfast on the grass. So there's this picture that they were so much more functional and yes. joyful and healthy before. And then it says he had never noticed then that the child was selfish. So whether it's that he feels pressure to raise the kid right and he thinks he's failing and so therefore he's going to blame the kid instead of blaming himself, trying to raise a kid alone, I mean, that would be a sympathetic reading of it, I think. Mm. Or whether it's just that he hasn't let himself grieve and his wife is who made the house functional and happy, and now he's taking it out on his kid because he's got bad emotions bottled up. Yes. You know? And I think that that's, that's to know a lot about grief is, is a mixed bag because <laughs> it is better, you know, ignorance is bliss. It is better not to know what it's like to lose a parent than it is to lose a parent, you know, at any age. But, but uh, Norton has lost his mom at age nine that's about as hard an age to lose a parent because you've gotten really attached to them by that point you're not young enough that you can't remember them you are old enough that or you're not old enough that you can say like okay i understand god's purpose for this or like like i i understood why my mother died like yeah you're not a teenager who's already trying to detach from your family and form ties outside your family yet mm -hmm. you know that's part of being a teenager but it's not part of being nine right and so this idea of like you don't know anybody else who's who's lost their mother you know it's 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 like an impossible place to be in um and and so this this you know this idea that here's here's this nine year old losing his mom, and then a year later he's eating you know stale cake with peanut butter and ketchup on it and throwing it up. And his dad is just withdrawn from him in disgust to yes, an extent. Yes. Yes. And yeah, it's the the disgust seems centered around the breakfast choices and the vomit, but I think the disgust you find out runs really deep right. in Shepherd for his own son. Almost like he didn't notice all the disgusting things about his son when his wife was alive. And then as soon as she died, that was all he could notice instead of like 
recognizing his wife and his son. Like, you know, that, that, that element of, like, he can take some solace in. And he even tells, he tries to tell her, tell Norton that. Like, she lives on in us, but he does not love his he son. He behave that way. Mm-mm. Yeah. He does, he, he certainly doesn't treat his son as if that's the, that's, that's the remainder of my wife on earth or or period. He sees it as like, she's not in hell. She's just gone. She's just nowhere. Yeah. And you know, we understand just how uncharitable his interpretation of his son is because of all the free and direct discourse. Yes. At the bottom of that second page, it says, um, the boy frowned. It was dawning upon him that something of his was threatened. This is when, um, Shepard says that he gave Rufus a key to the house and told him he could come by any time. Interesting. So Shepard is interpreting Norton's reaction as being frowning because something of his was threatened. That I think it's pretty clearly his interpretation. Like the narrator yes, is not endorsing yes. it. And so because we're just in Shepard's head throughout this section of the story. But yeah, th- that's a very uncharitable he could be frowning for any number of reasons. That's an uncharitable True. assumption. Like he I, also is has he already thrown up at that point? He hadn't thrown up yet. So maybe he doesn't feel so well. Yeah, he doesn't feel yeah. so well. So And I can imagine if you had told me I'm nine years old and my parent had said, Well, you know, I met this delinquent, destructive child and I gave him a key to our house and told him to come by any time because I just thought that would be a good idea. And you're home by yourself a lot, so you know you should know he might just stop by. I mean, I would yes. be nervous, perhaps. Um, maybe that's how he's feeling. Yes, and so I think that's just the setup for this story is we have two characters, and we're going to bring a third character in. And so Shepard, you can see that he is in denial about his wife. or Not necessarily denial, he has gone to a coping mechanism, which is, I'm going to try and bring in these delinquent youth and try and, like, reform them and improve them. And that's going to prove... And, I, like, I, you know, I, when my dad passed away, I had the impetus to want to, like, be the catcher in the rye and, and keep anyone else from ever having to experience the, the, the pain that I was feeling while knowing I couldn't. But but I think that's a natural impulse in grief is to is to want to go into, I want to love people enough or, or serve people enough or, or protect people enough or whatever it is sympathize with them, to the point where they don't have to go to the the valley that I've been in of pain, and yet. Uh, Shepherd wants to do this for a stranger, not for his own son, and I think that that's, I actually think that's indicative of, of the grief experience. I was more likely to want to do that with someone I didn't know and didn't already have like a, you know, uh, 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 a complex relationship with than I did with like my family members or Whitney, you know, like, like people that were frustrated with us for not being there for you adequately or something like that. Whereas a stranger, you don't have that expectation that they're going to help you in your grief. And it makes you probably makes you feel Good and a little in good, more yeah. in control if you can help somebody. I mean that makes sense. And I think that 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 can come from uh you know God is helping me through this grief. He's the Holy Comforter. I want I want to take that faith and 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 let it you know blossom with someone else's life. And and I hope I did that. You know I mean I I think I did. But um, 
but that's not what shepherds do. He's not doing this out of a faith in God. He's doing it out of a faith in himself. And, and in, the, the like Whitney said, the prepackaged philosophy of what I'm just going to call liberal do-goodery, which is like mm-hmm. this idea of the, the, the society or, the, or the, 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 the state or, you know, what, whatever in, entity is preaching this, it's 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 removed from any religious mindset it's just it's its own to me it's its own religion to say i'm going to work my way to a place in the line of human beings in in history by what i do with my time on earth and may, maybe that maybe that's just it is like you don't get an eternity you get a posterity on earth and he has a great amount of faith in psychology to diagnose and fix easily. Which yes. anyone who has more than a dilettante's amount of knowledge of psychology would not have quite as much faith, I think, in the simple solutions as he does. Um, he thinks that the moment he sees Rufus's club foot, he, he says, oh, I understand exactly who this kid is and what the problem is. He's compensating for his foot by acting out. If I get him a new shoe, it will solve the problem. Like it's an equate, like psychological problems are equi- mathematical equations and it's all clear and logical and straightforward. Instead of uh, anyone, I think, who works in psychology long enough starts realizing, okay, it actually is quite complicated because human beings and the human mind are mysterious and unpredictable. And I think you bring up, uh, you know, a huge point about this story, which is, here's this title, The Lame Shall Enter First, and yet it's almost like Shepard is trying to use that as a dictum for, well, I need to, like, fix this person's lameness. Yeah, f- fix it, hide it, cover it up. And, and it's like, to me, the, the statement of the title is simple. And he has a simple solution, and yet faith is a complex thing, and God is, is, is an immeasurably complex, and yet knowable in a childlike faith. It's, it's, it, that's part of what is so mysterious about the Christian faith, is that there's, there are things you can't know, and there are things that you definitely know, and, and you have to be at peace with mystery and certainty simultaneously, and, and so... We'll talk about that with with Rufus, but Shepard seems to be, he seems to be so devoted to his cause because he has internalized this kind of philosophy, like I said, of how how you use your time will somehow give you a place, you know, in 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 the um, in the order of life. And like that, it leaves him a legacy, maybe. Yes, yeah, like if that he idea. Could reform yeah. Rufus and turn him into a great man. Yeah, and, yeah. He's not going to be like Martin Luther King or someone like that. That's like a reformer on the national stage, and and he knows that. And and of course, this story is written in the civil rights era, so th- there are tremendous reforms happening across at least the United States. You know, obviously worldwide as well. But but he doesn't have the ambition to be a great reformer because he's really too selfish to want to be that selfless with his time. And, and he doesn't have a bigger cause 
motivating him, like the civil rights movement has the, the faith in, in the God that redeemed you know, Israel out of Egypt and the God that, you know, that, that, that has sustained Christianity for 2,000 years, that, that they could be an agent of uh, the will of God. It's like Shepherd isn't an agent of the will of God. He's just an agent of his own will. Shepherd's mission to reform, not only is it narrowed down to his own ego, what's going to serve his ego, it's also narrowed down to only people he's deemed worthy of the reforming efforts. Yes. Like we're told Johnson was worth any amount of effort because he had the potential. That I wrote the word uh, eugenics in the, Interesting. In the margin because um, that impulse to decide that some people are worthier or fitter than others, worth the effort to keep alive, worth the effort to educate, worth the effort to, you know, help and encourage. Yeah. Um, this is giving intellect the primacy over any kind of like physical or genetic fitness. Yes. Um, but regardless of the criteria you're using, I mean, it could just, uh, the eugenics movement sometimes did aim itself not at things like race but at things like IQ. And so that's right. why you had, even in the, in the southern states, in the United States particularly, you sometimes had movements to sterilize people whose IQ was under a certain threshold so they couldn't have children, yeah. so they couldn't continue, yeah. you know, the, the poor genetics. So this young man is deemed worthy by a man who, despite all his talk of being charitable, is ruthless. Yeah, and I think that that's a great word for him. And it's funny that Rufus, you know, kind of sounds like ruthless. Um, <laughs> and and he is kind of ruthless. I mean, we'll talk about Rufus extensively in a few minutes. But um, really, Shepard, he doesn't know himself at all. And, and I think that that's, it's very difficult to know yourself because you have to be radically honest with yourself and, uh, most people, are, it's just a scary thing. Like most people get get scared off of like, oh, I don't, I don't want to see myself as that way. But it's actually incredibly emancipating to see yourself for who you really are, which is you're a creation. You are not the creator. You are a, um, you know, a, a person in the. <laughs> In the justice system, you are not the judge. You are a part of the economy. You are not the the cause of the economy or or the like. You know the the the, the recipient of all the you know, um, you know. You are a subject. You are not a king. Now, I mean, if if any kings are listening to this, you may be a king on earth, but you know, that <laughs> it's you. When you recognize the truths about yourself, you can start being honest with yourself. And I think the the biggest truth that that you know Rufus says it's true whether or not I believe it, it is that God is God and I am not God. And if that's my starting place for knowing myself, I actually can get to know myself pretty well. And I think I have done that in in the thirty eight years I've been alive. And Shepherd is is in that place where he doesn't want to know himself at all. And, and uh, we'll talk about that that article from the Mississippi Quarterly. Uh, it, br- it brings up 
an interesting parallel to something else that we have near and dear to our hearts. Um, you know, you know what I'm thinking of? Well, we'll talk about it in a second. Um, but just Shepard doesn't know himself, and I think he doesn't even necessarily know the, the entirety of his reasons for no. working with Rufus. Because he lets himself think that he actually is an unselfish person. Yeah. Because... It's it's unbearable to think otherwise. I mean, at the end, it's it's he starts realizing that he's been quite selfish. He's not been who he thought he is, and I think it's cleansing, but it's horrifying. You know, it's it's good for you, but it's difficult. Yeah. The most difficult thing you can ever do to start seeing yourself as weak and selfish. Yeah, where we all are weak and selfish, but when I have those moments where I suddenly realize that I'm weak and selfish. It mm-hmm. really, it can make you want to despair. Like to say, I'm a person of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean mm-hmm. lips, and I've just seen the Lord. Like you just kind of want to die, you know, for yeah. a minute. When you start, when you realize you're just not who you thought you were. It's interesting that you say that because I was just thinking about the phrase instant destruction. When you recognize your guilt you can have the tendency to want to just get annihilated. Yeah. And... I can't get up from this and just move through my life anymore. Right. I just, I just want to stop. And the fact that, you know, several of these stories that we've talked about have death at the end, you know, like, I don't think that Norton dies at the end of this story because of his guilt. I think he dies because of his hope. Yeah, but um his his innocence. Yeah, his innocence, uh, to you know, call back to Thomas Sutton yeah. from season one. Same kind of innocence too, that na- naivete. Yes. Like like the river where he takes a metaphor yes. literally. Well, I, you bring up the river and I think that's a great thing to just, you know, sidetrack to for a second. That story is so similar to this one in a way because it's about two young children well, you know, two children, um, getting the gospel and at the end of the story, dying in, in what I would call a suicide. Yeah, because they've taken it quite literally because they're they're children yes. and they're naive. They've taken a metaphor quite literally. But it's not portrayed as a deep tragedy. I think it almost is portrayed as an escape from a deeply dark home. Yes. In that's, both cases. Mm, yes. And yet yeah, just the, the concept of what is an abusive home um, I think is actually a, a central question to this story. And, and certainly the river is another example of that that's in the good man's hard to find uh, collection. But um, that story, his parents have to get him a babysitter on the weekend because they drink so much. And um, it's neglect in yeah, both stories. Exactly. I would, I would propose. It's not, um, they're not physically harming him you know, in a, in a violent way. Um, but Norton is certainly physically harmed. I mean, he throws up his ke- his cake. And, and his his father doesn't even wipe his mouth for him or help him get to bed. He just says, wipe your mouth and go to bed. And mm-hmm. he wipes his mouth on his sleeve and goes and gets in his bed. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. Poor Norton. But that, I think that that raises this question of, like, is he the poorer one or is he the richer one? And And... and you can only see it that way through the vision that comes with faith. If you don't have that, then you're like, well, clearly he's the poorer one, right? 
because he's he's you know Shepard's the one he's the one that's not going to get canceled. Well, it's like at the beginning of the Violent Beard Away, Flannery O'Connor's final novel. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene where um, young Tarwater, the protagonist, is being tempted by Satan. Um, and Satan is like appearing as this character called the stranger, just kind of talking yes, in his head. Yes. And he says, you can't get no poorer than dead. Interesting. And the that's, dead are as poor as it gets. And I think yeah. from a worldly perspective, that's true, right? Like it's nothing but pitiable that Norton is dead. You can't be any worse off than dead from a yes. worldly perspective. Interesting. That's Interesting. not true for a believer. Right. And, you know, just that what what is driving Shepard is this undying quest to have a son. And Rufus is the son. Norton, he doesn't count. And that that's that's what's so upsetting is like he isn't his son and yet he adopts him. I mean he, he gives him a key to his house. He does call him his son and the older brother. Like he It's like the Pharisees who refuse to take care of their mother and father and say they're gonna give the money to the temple yes. instead. Mm-hmm. And Jesus condemns that and says, You just don't want to take care of your mother and father. Yeah. You're using you're using your sanctimonious reasons as a screen to hide your own greed yeah now you know we have discussed the humor a little bit let let me go well actually let me yeah okay let me go to this uh as he's thinking about rufus (laughs) you know he came to Rufus's, uh, to Johnson's IQ score, which, by the way, Johnson, son of John. John is a name that means grace or God's grace. Uh, and so son of grace uh, is interesting that that's his, you know, his last name meaning. And um, just one of my favorite things in the whole story is when he's thinking about Rufus and then it says, well, now I've got to find it. Um, Good gosh. All right, now i got to go backwards forward. He's thinking about what can he do. It says what was wasted on Norton would cause Johnson to flourish. And, and <laughs> he says he would have given anything to be able to put a telescope in Johnson's hands. <laughs> and I, I just wrote, I never laughed so hard in my life. Uh, which is a reference to Nasty Quacks, uh, Daffy Duck cartoon with the little girl that has Daffy as a pet, and the dad is hilarious, and Daffy is hilarious, and it's my favorite cartoon. Um, but that I, I just I remember reading this the first time and getting to that sentence, and just that the the earnestness in 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 Shepard's mind of I would give anything to put a telescope in his hands, like. It, it just made me crack up laughing. And then, of course, it's like Rufus is capable of selling everything that Shepard holds dear. So when Rufus gets the telescope in his hands, his reaction is essentially, yeah, I've seen enough. It's kind of boring. You've seen the moon, you've seen the moon. He just tears down the idealistic excited expectations you can just see Shepard rehearsing these scenes in his mind where he's going to feel so good about himself 
inspiring Rufus with a telescope, giving Rufus the new shoe, and Rufus just tears down all those hopes and dreams. Yeah. Now, the the shoe, the sole was as thick as a brick. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor makes this shoe just the height of hilarity to me. And it's like, in reality, whenever I've... And I've known people that have club foot, you know. And, and when I see that, I have a tremendous sympathy. I don't have a, like... Everything that person does is compensating for that foot. I just have this sense of, like, when God reveals weakness to me, I am, I, I, I am just humbled, and I want, I want to just connect to that person, not, not to, not to um, be patronizing to them, but to just, just to join with them. And, and, you know, I've been, I've been uh, privileged to get that opportunity several times in my life where, um, like my great uncle, um, uh, Houston Lowry, Uncle Doc, he had polio. And so he was on crutches, you know, my entire life and was in a wheelchair toward the end. Um, but I remember talking to him at my uh, cousin Jonathan's wedding, and we were just having a great conversation. And, and it's like... I feel like I can come to a person whose weakness I see and really, like, like make their dignity shine. The key might be if we could go through life and see everyone as having that weakness, exactly. whether it's visible exactly. on their body or not. because And not try to fix it. Yes. Like, Shepard's yes. pretty determined. To, he wants to fix Rufus. He sees Rufus yes. as having yes. a dysfunction. And he wants to fix it, and he thinks he has the power to fix it, and he's proven wrong. Yeah. But that idea of looking at someone and saying, you have a weakness and I need to fix you, that is not an attitude that's going to feel good to mm-hmm. anyone, probably. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not how Rufus sees his foot. Rufus is proud of his foot. He, I think he likes it. He's proud that it. he said it grew when the, when the shoe they measured for didn't fit. He said it grew. Um, and he's happy. It grew because it gives him more power. He says, you know, this is a weapon. Yep. I can kick somebody with this and do some major damage. Yeah. Um, he likes it. And so this idea that someone wants to be fixed even yeah. and is going to be amenable to your fixing. I love that moment a few pages in where Shepard is talking to Rufus about what Rufus's deep, dark problem is. And Rufus says... Satan has me in his power. Yeah. And Shepard, it says, felt a momentary dull despair as if he were faced with some elemental warping of nature that had happened too long ago to be corrected now. And I wrote original sin in the Mm -hmm. margin. But I think Shepard has a flash of insight that (laughs) there's something much deeper and, and more ingrained and more spiritual that he can't fix yeah. that's going on with the Rufus. If he had let that sink in, it could have changed him for the better, but he, he doesn't. He dismisses that. He says, rubbish, we're living in the space mm-hmm. age. You're too smart to give me an answer like that. But you know, the, the name Rufus means red. Interesting. And the name Adam means red in Hebrew. Yes. So I think that he is representative of is he a son of grace or is he the the source of the original sin he's he's a little of both in this in this story 
Yeah, I think that that's really, you know, a powerful, you know, juxtaposition. Good, good on you, Flannery. Um, she, <laughs> she just is so good. I mean, just that whole paragraph that you just read, it says, Shepard looked at him steadily. There was no indication on the boy's face that he, that he had said this to be funny. And to me, there's something about that that's hilarious. Like, the way that this is narrated is like, Shepard is like, He's not being funny. It's like it's dawning on him that Rufus's faith is sincere and unshakable and that it's more powerful than his own faith in, a, in his own vision for what life needs to be. And then it says the thin, the line on his thin of his thin mouth was set with pride. Shepard's eyes hardened. He felt a momentary dull despair as if he'd wiped uh, like what, what he just read. And, and then it says, this boy's questions about life had been answered by signs nailed on pine trees. Does Satan have you in his power? Repent or burn in hell. Jesus saves. He would know the Bible with or without reading it. And it's just, wow, what a, what a powerful, just like Flannery O'Connor, a, a Roman Catholic person, has gotten... <laughs> She got religion. She, 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 she gets how Southern people, and, and I think really, I'm just saying Southern people because we live in the South, but how people interact with the Christian faith is that you can learn it by osmosis if you're in a community of faith. And this idea of like, you're seeing these signs on the trees. Well, you know, she uses the trees and the woods and, and this idea of nailed to nailed on a pine tree. Mm-hmm. It's she just everything is so loaded and so just succulent with truth. And yet here's Shepard just popping every bubble by saying, We're living in the space age. And um one of the most powerful episodes of television I've ever seen is the episode of The Crown, uh, called Scient Scientia Potenta Est, I think it is. Uh, Knowledge is Power. It's about... Um, no, it's not called that. It's called Moonwalk. Moon, moon Dust. Moon Dust. Moon Dust. It's called Moon Dust. Um, and it's about Prince Philip watching the moon landing and putting literally all of his faith in it. Just saying, that is it. And then at the end of the episode, realizing he actually has lost his faith in God and his mom has died recently and there's just something to be said about people make decisions for how to cope with life and cope with its griefs griefs that that affect their minds you know sometimes it'll affect your body i mean i know people that have like turned to drugs or alcohol to cope with grief or people that have um you know um just like, I don't know, like gained a lot of weight or lost a ton of weight, you know, um, in response to, to someone close to them dying. And, and, and that's just a cope, you know, that's a way to cope with grief. But, but here is Shepard really not showing, like Whitney was saying, if we could only see the, the, the club foot of every person, we would have that more instant sympathy. And it's like, I, I have I have a lot of sympathy for what I can see, but I'm trying to train myself to see everyone not as the way my eyes see them, but the way my spirit sees them, which is to say, okay, I need to 
I need to treat every person I ever interact with, you know, as if God is watching me and, 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 and like, because he is and, and that, 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 that I will start with acknowledging their dignity. Now I might, you know, I might challenge them or I might sympathize with them or I might, um, react strongly to them or I might just kind of absorb what's happening. But if I start with that knowledge that this is a broken person, then I'm more likely to, to convey God's love to them. And if I, if I start with this person's, this person's on the up and up, this person's a fine person. And it's funny that Rufus calls Shepard a good, he says, you may be good, but you ain't right. And Jesus famously says, there is no one good but God alone. And so, you know, when Jesus says that, he's been, he's been called, hey, good teacher, right? And, oh, bless his heart, the rich young ruler. It, it, Jesus is saying, be careful with the word good. And I think shepherd is all about doing good. Right. Don't apply the word good to yourself. Yes. Or to other people. Yes. You can actually safely apply it to Jesus because he's God, but that's right. the only right. person. And, and like, a, yeah. It's like and, you're saying about grief. Yeah. Just to piggyback on that, um, I read an article, kind of an essay, reflective essay once called Hamlet Isn't Mad, He's Grieving. Yes. And it yes. was saying, you know, essentially he's showing all these signs of you know, just that kind of recklessness and yes. impulsivity and unpredictability that can associate with grief. And the author was grieving for the death of her father. I think it was a woman, her father. And she said that she would be at the grocery store or something. And she felt that she should have like a signpost around her neck that said, I'm grieving yeah. because otherwise he or she, the author would do these unpredictable things sometimes or behave in ways that were not typical and people would just think that's weird yeah it, you know is he nuts is she nuts and yeah. really we just don't know just because you don't have a visible club foot or something right, you don't know right. what might be just weighing a person down mm. and making the person behave that way at any given time someone yeah. who who is behaving in a way that frustrates you out in the world as we just move through life and so that's just so helpful and important to keep in mind because Shepard seems to be looking for something powerful to put his faith in, but he doesn't right. want it to be God. And I think sometimes when you're grieving, you don't want it to be God because you, you're blaming, if there is a God, you're blaming God for letting your life go the way it's going yes. and, and letting your grief happen. So putting your faith in human potential, you know, putting your faith in, um, space, you know, and if we can, um, travel to space, discover the aliens, like that's going to yeah. be a higher power, going to give us wisdom, going to give us a way to escape um, Earth if Earth becomes uninhabitable. A lot of people do put their faith in in the concept of space and science and human potentiality right. because it, sometimes it is grief, I think, that can push that. You don't want to put your faith in God because you think, well, if there were a God, why would he be letting my life go the way it's going? Yes. Um yeah, I think that, that everything you said is really just right on in terms of what is what is at the root of, of Shepard. And it's just, he's lost his wife, you know? And 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 it, it doesn't seem like he had a really, like, 
strong. I mean, it doesn't ever imply that their relationship was really strong. It just implies that her effect on him was strong in a, in a positive way. And so just that, that concept of like, like when he was saying, um, Hamlet has lost his father. And it's interesting that you mentioned that, that he's grieving. Um, he's not in his right mind. I mean, everyone can agree like Hamlet is not in his right mind, but grief is a way of getting out of your right mind because it's upsetting the way things were and it's upsetting the way that things should be in their, in their perfect sense. Like we shouldn't have to lose the ones we love. And of course in, in Christianity, you don't lose the ones that you love if they love God because you get eternity with them instead of, I mean, you might get like, like I was 35 when my dad passed away. You might get nine years like Norton gets. You might get 35 years like me. You might get, I mean, my mom's 67. Her mom's still alive. Like you might get a long time with your parent, but you're not going to, unless you die before your parent, you're not going to get your whole life. And, um, it's interesting that you say that about Hamlet because I, I'm, thinking about this class called Good Grief that I want to teach that's a a class about grief Um, and Hamlet is one of the things I was going to use and I was actually thinking oh I should use (laughs) the limb shilling first too because I think if we learn about grief we will be more prepared to go through grief not in a way that will um, immunize us but in a way that will just show us A. we're not the only ones that's ever had to go through this and B. There is life after someone else dying in our lives, um, and so like when I when I lost my dad, the Sunday school class I was teaching was full of people in their fifties and sixties, and even someone in his seventies, and they had all lost either a spouse or a parent or both parents uh, in in that um, just the like few years that I was teaching that class. And it really prepared me, like, they all lost someone in their life, and then I lost my dad. And it was like, if I had lost him first, I couldn't have walked them through grief any better. But I walked with them in grief when they were grieving. And then when I lost, you know, someone in my life, they were better prepared to walk with me. And and I really felt a, a, um, a true communion with those people that I still feel to this day, uh, even though I'm not teaching their Sunday school class anymore, that that I think is part of the human. That's part of the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to feel brought together and drawn together in the hardships, rather than splintered apart. And um, you know, all all of these stories we've talked about have had someone that's lost someone already, right? I mean, everything that rises must converge. The dad's dead. Uh, comforts of home, the dad is dead. Um, the, I guess there's no one... Well, I would assume that M- Mr. Fortune's wife is already dead in uh, View of the Woods. Greenleaf, um, the, you know, the dad is dead. And, and so um, I think this is the first time the mom has been dead, which is interesting. Um, and so just just thinking through the grief of this story is really illustrative to to understanding not only is there grief in in Shepherd and Norton's life there's actually grief in Rufus's life he his mom is in jail I don't know is his dad dead already I don't 
It's, I think so. And his grandfather has abandoned him to go live in a cave yes. to fulfill some sort of biblical. Pro- yes. He thinks he has sort of a, a prophecy that he's got to enact by going and living in a cave. He's a radical prophet type. It's interesting to bring that up. I, I had forgotten that. I mean, I marked it when I read it the second time. He's gone there, and, and I got the impression that his grandfather has abandoned everything about life and is living like he's trying to live purely in the kingdom of heaven until he dies. Which truly, it's like the Pharisees. I mean, they said they were doing that too. I think that yeah. it doesn't honor God to pretend you don't have responsibilities to other people on earth or ties to other people on earth and to just withdraw in as if you're already, like you said, in the kingdom of heaven. Like, yeah. I was thinking as you were talking about grief, about, I'm going to name drop Tim Keller again. I was thinking mm-hmm. about a different Tim Keller sermon about, um, I think it was about the raising of Lazarus. Maybe it was the same one you're talking about, but he was saying that. No, I was talking about Lazarus and the rich man. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. So the raising of Lazarus from the dead when Jesus shows up and Lazarus has died already and Mary and Martha are just devastated and they they still trust him to a degree but you can they're angry and they say if you had been here he wouldn't have died and Tim Keller said that the word that's used to describe Jesus's emotions there is an, is a really strong word that's usually not translated as strong as it truly is in the Greek um, that he was greatly troubled in spirit that's the normal translation but he says it's like an, an earthquake um, within yeah. his spirit it's this incredibly strong reaction yeah and Jesus, then Jesus weeps. I think that he even says it's like it's like an utter agony. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking about the beautiful balance there between Jesus having such deep. Ang- he said it also that it had some anger, probably makes right, sense. Right, right. But he had such deep anger and, and compassion and, and pain at the thought of Lazarus being dead, at the thought that people have to die, at the pain of his friends, Mary Martha. Mm-hmm. And he knew that he was going to raise this man from the dead momentarily. So he knew it wasn't hopeless, but he still yeah. grieved deeply. Yeah. And it's okay for us to grieve deeply too, but we don't want to grieve as if we have no hope. Right. And... I just, you know, I think about this, like, the grandfather's gone. It says he's gone with a remnant to the hills, him and some others. They're going to bury some Bibles in a cave and take two different kinds of animals all like that, like Noah. Only this time it's going to be fire, not flood. And I thought, Mrs. Greenleaf, this, like, burying, you know, burying scripture, burying the the newspaper uh, headlines. Like, I actually think... (laughs) You know, the idea of, like, putting things in the ground is actually a good thing. Like, you know, here's here's Miss Greenleaf, like, putting the newspaper clippings in the ground instead of just keeping them around the house where you're going to think about them all the time. It's like she puts them in the ground, she prays over them, and then it, it's done, and she can, you know, get ready mm-hmm. for the next thing to pray for. Not my responsibility anymore. Yeah. Yeah, Sim- like she's, yeah, symbols like she's like taking that it to us. God. Yeah. And she's left it at God's feet. Um, and that's something that, I, you know, I have grown into that level of faith. And, and I think it's just something you have to just, God, God has to get you to it. Like, I, I couldn't have chosen, oh, yeah, I want to get to that point. Like, I didn't know I, I didn't know I would be at this point 
five years ago or ten years ago. Um, I guess I hoped I would be, but I didn't know it would be me at this stage in my life because I always thought, okay, well, I need to, like, have a mentor in the faith. I need to, like, you know, have someone to shoot for and someone, you know, someone to, like, you know, almost, like, be in the shadow of. um, And I think I got to that point where I was like, you know, Jesus was 33. Like, he wasn't he wasn't as old as I am now. And, and God determined his ministry should be in that age range because I think if you're not faithful, you know, in the age range that we're in now, it becomes increasingly hard to be faithful the older you get. And... You know, I, I don't say that as a judgment. I say that as a warning. Like, don't get to the end of your your days and, and start looking for God then because God's been around the whole time and it's a lot harder to put your faith in. At the, I think it's actually harder to put your faith in God when you're about to die than it is, you know, w- when you're in, in the middle of life because when you're about to die, it's, it's almost like... Um, it's almost like, okay, I'm going to go bet all of my money right now. Like, most people don't do that. And, you know, you're not always thinking clearly when you're yeah. approaching death. I mean, just to think that, I mean, I would never want to give up the relationship with God that I've gotten mm-hmm. to have all these yeah. years. But, you know, there is no guarantee that you're going to have that time to reflect and think think soundly and clearly. Yeah at the end of your life to make the most important decision that you have to make on earth, you know? You know, it's interesting. We're, we're going to get into this this concept about Rufus and, and Shepard <laughs> in a second, but right before he talks about his grandfather going off to the hills, it says, uh, Shepard says, How are things? How's your grandfather treating you? He sat down on the edge of the sofa. He dropped dead, the boy said indifferently. You don't mean it, Shepard cried. He got up and sat down on the coffee table near the boy. And it's like, he's like, <gasps> like he, he's like, oh good, there's not this barrier in between me and this boy now. Now I can have him, like, and maybe it's, you know, to adopt him, but as uh, Frederick Ayals, uh interprets, Shepard's uh, do-goodery, could possibly be a cover for something more sinister. Now, Whitney, I'm going to start describing somebody. He's got a kid, a a boy. He's got about a 9-year-old, 10-year-old boy. He does not seem to have much relationship with that boy. And yet he coaches a little league baseball team and he seems to want to be around those kids all the time. Who am I talking about? Oh my gosh. You're describing Woody Goodman from Veronica Mars. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It took me a second, but yeah, you're right. Which that's depicted as classic predator behavior. I think like a pattern of predatory behavior on Veronica Mars. Yes. I did. I had not thought about that possibility when I read the story the first few times. But I had read the article, and the the language that's used is suggestive. I 
I think probably yes. only suggestive on purpose, not definitive. That O'Connor didn't yeah. wa- maybe didn't want it to be definitive, but because that that would have made it. Um, you could have read it psychologically, and it yeah. would have been bo- like you could box it into right. Like, and I don't get the impression at all, and neither did did the the writer Isles. I don't get the impression at all that any abuse actually occurs. No, at, or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's just it, O'Connor does make a point to sh- talk about um, Shepard touching even the boy he's coaching little league. He. Mm-hmm. Like grabs him around the neck and walks off with him, like holding him really close. There, there's a kind of emphasis on that, the language that it uses to talk about wanting to like penetrate deeply into his mind and things like that. Just do, it does seem a little suggestive. It is. It's very. It's it's up to the edge of Flannery was trying to make this obvious, but it isn't. It isn't obvious, and. It's also like, well, why, like, why would he be seeking out this fourteen-year-old with a club foot? Well, the, you know, it's like the, the 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 predators prey upon the weakest first. He thinks that he's dealing with someone who's vulnerable and Ooh. who is compensating for his vulnerability yeah. through bad behavior. I think he's actually dealing with someone who is incredibly strong-willed. Right. He just doesn't understand who he's dealing with, but. Just I'll throw in this too. The the article mentioned that a few times Rufus is associated with the wife. Like for example, he sleeps in the wife's yes. the, the dead wife's bed. He puts on the wife's corset. Yes, and that was the funniest moment of the story to me. Um, but if everything functions in multiple ways, because yes, okay, Rufus is kind of usurping. Um, Norton's mom's place in the family, right. and that of course seems suggestive of some potential for yeah, yeah. a desire in Shepard, but also he's desecrating the mom's memories, going through the mom's stuff yes. and treating it really lightly. And that upsets Norton. And I think that functions on, a, on another level. It's not having to do with some kind of predatory impulse in Shepard. It's just yeah. that at first he's desecrating Norton's mom's mm. memory in a way that really upsets Norton and reveals the depth of Norton's grief and unresolved feelings. And yeah, and then later, he actually uses that grief to get at Shepard by convincing Norton that he needs to become a yeah. Christian. Well, it's interesting that so, so this is at the end of the story. We'll we'll go back to some of my other favorite funny moments, but at the end of the story, the reporter comes with the cops. Why on earth would a reporter come with the cops? Yeah, I know that was odd. That made me think maybe this. You know, the cops are taking this like he made suggestions to me. Like that's what that's what um, that's Ruf, what Rufus says, and um, it says Shepard's face blanched. Now, I don't know if it's like oh my gosh he's betraying me and that's why his right. like, like not not like. Um, like they had a, had, you know, he had been abusing him, and he was like, "Oh my gosh, he's confessing it." I, like I'm saying, like, yeah, he, uh, I can't believe this person for whom I have given more than I gave to my own child is is like mm-hmm. trying to do this. Like he's using the most powerful weapon he could use against me, which is falsely accusing yes. me of sexual advances. And he does. He calls him a dirty atheist, mm. and 
I, I mean, immoral suggestions. And then the immoral suggestion is there's not a hell. Yes. That's yes. amazing. Yes. It almost suggests that Rufus has a naivete in him yeah. still. And he's, he's saying something that's so powerfully true if you're a Christian, which is the worst thing you can do, you'd be better off to tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the sea than to lead a little one astray Yes, from the truth, mm. right? The worst yeah. thing you yeah. can do is indoctrinate an impressionable little kid Exactly. To believe that there is no God. And yes. so that is an immoral suggestion. Like there's a there's a raw truth to that that's so powerful. Yeah. But it it's gonna seem funny to the world, to the reporter and right. the cops. Oh my gosh, that's what this kid means by immoral yeah. suggestions that there's not a hell. That's hilarious. But well, it is an immoral suggestion. And it, you know, Shepard says the page before that, he says he thinks he or sorry, uh, uh, Rufus says this about Shepard. He says, um, to show up that Big Ten Jesus, T-I-N-10. He hissed and kicked his leg out at Shepard. He thinks he's God. I'd rather be in the reformatory than in this house. I'd rather be in the pen. The devil has him in his power. He don't know his left hand from his right. He don't have as much sense as his, as his crazy kid. And I was thinking about that concept. Like, I think child sexual abuse, or, or you know, I mean, Rufus is 14, Abusing someone sexually is is one of the most heinous things we can think of. And I think, you know, I was thinking about, like, what causes someone to do that? Well, they think they're God. If you think you are God, then you think you can do whatever. You Your might, desires yeah, are you may justifiable. Think, yeah, you might think that you can kill someone. You can abuse them. You can neglect them. You can, um, you know corrupt them you can um judge them you can, i mean there are any number of ways that you could um you know you could say that they're 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 meaningless like like the racism of of um you know the uh everything that rises must converge um that that like the the, the sins that that society kind of is on this revolving you know carousel of like it's not okay to pretend you're a god and, and abuse a child sexually, or it's not okay to pretend you're God and, and, and um, you know, be, be dismissive of someone because of their race. And those are true. I mean, that, those are true. It's just those are pet sins of yes. our age, and they, they're horrific sins. Exactly. And it can not leave room for other things to also be sins. I actually think that O'Connor's project to so to speak in a lot of these stories is to show all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes. Not just our society's pet sins, but all sin is serious yes. and harmful. Like for example, the sin of I did more for him than I did for my own child. Mm -hmm. That's a devastating sin. Yes. Just like it would have been a devastating sin if he had sexually abused Rufus. Right, right. They're both devastating sins. Yeah. And so are so many other things. Yeah. And they're all centered on pride and self-interest. Yeah. But pride and self-interest can manifest in ways that look completely socially acceptable. Yep. In ways that look completely socially unacceptable. Un unacceptable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, th I think what 
Flannery O'Connor is saying with with the judgment that Shepherd uh, that that uh, Rufus makes of Shepherd is, he said there wasn't no hell. The worst thing you can do to someone is to deny that God exists and tell them that they're wrong if they believe it, mm-hmm. or it, like that. That's actually worse than any other thing you could do to them because that affects them essentially on earth and eternally in a way that like no no sexual abuse murder you know uh conning someone out of all their money anything no no amount of like calling someone the n-word like no act you can do on earth will affect someone eternally as much as telling them that god doesn't exist or there's no hell because you you want hell to be the place where the evil is and you know the 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 remarkable thing about Christianity is that the only people that go to heaven are the ones who know they're evil and that's that's what Tim Keller's sermon was uh, ultimately about was like hell is a place where you think you're not evil and that like you think you can still treat the poor you know oh go get a, a drip of water from me for my tongue you know, like th- th- this, like Lazarus and the rich man story that Jesus tells is indicative of an unrepentant person. And yet he wants Lazarus to go to his family and tell them that he's in hell and warn them. And yet, you know, Abraham says, he's, they've got, a, they've got uh, Moses and the prophets. That they, they, like, if they listen to that, if they listen to the Old Testament, which is that's it's, it's, it's interesting you brought up Romans. Um, Romans as a book is really just about like, here's why you're not going to heaven. Here's why you're not sanctified. You are actually evil and in need of a savior. Yes. Whereas I think just as bad as saying there's no hell is that Shepherd tell in this final confrontation. Shepherd tells Rufus, "You're not evil." You're more mortally confused. Mm-hmm. You're not evil. That also is a deep, damaging lie. Yes. You're not evil. Um, we tell ourselves that all the time, yes. but he's going a step further and telling another person that. I think it sounds kind in a worldly yes. sense to say, you're not evil to another person. Yes. But we, it makes me think we really shouldn't interfere when someone has a moment of saying, you know, I've just realized I'm guilty before God. Yes. I'm evil. You shouldn't interfere because God's working in those moments. Interesting. You know, I I think about that concept and, I, you know, I would want to say you committed a sin. You will commit more sins. That's part of being a human being. And yet we have a hope that those sins aren't immediately destroying us, and that's God's God's universal grace and mercy, and that we have an eternal hope that God can redeem those sins. So the lie is, you're not evil. Yep. The truth is, well, yeah, you, you're evil. You're not entirely evil, but you're right. evil. So am I. Yeah. But that's not where the story ends. There's no condemnation yeah. for that evil if you're in Christ. Yeah. And and the concept that this, this story raises in its uh, 
I would call this the climax, like the, you know, <laughs> to, to use a loaded word, <laughs> the, the, the highest point of emotion in the story is really this last four pages because it, 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 Shepard feels ultimately betrayed. He feels like not only has Rufus been going and, and looking in someone's window or crashing, you know, uh, smashing up all their dishes and getting away with it and lying to him about it, but now he's using what Shepard sees as a lie but is actually the truth, which is he made suggestions to me. And Shepard is actually, he's never crushed in the other times. He's just fractured, but now he's crushed. And it says, his one aim had been to save Johnson from some decent kind of service. For some decent kind of service, he had not spared himself. He had sacrificed his reputation. He had done more for Johnson than he'd done for his own child. Foulness hung about him like an odor in the air and so close that it seemed to come from his own breath. And it's interesting, at the end of that page, it says, slowly that his face drained of color, it became almost gray beneath the white halo of his hair. And his hair is described as a halo in the very first page of the story. But it says, his mouth twisted and he closed his eyes against the revelation. And that's where the ending for Shepard, it's ambiguous the way that the ending is for Mrs. May and Greenleaf. Is she being destroyed by grace uh, up until, you know, to the point of death? Or is she being let, um, is she be given, given over to her own desires, which is Satan? And the bull that destroys her, is, it, it's not clear. Um, and it could be, you know, it could work both ways. Like Flannery's metaphors sometimes are so powerful that they, they really could, could work both ways the way that the cornerstone works the both ways. Like you're either crushed under the cornerstone by Christ in the end, you know, in, in your death or in the end times, or you're broken over the cornerstone to be remade and reforged, you know, in Christ's image. And so this ending, it says, uh, which by the way, we're going to backtrack and talk about Norton and Shepard last, but um, it's uh, Norton, Norton and Rufus Johnson. It says he had stuffed his own emptiness with good works like a glutton, which of course calls back to eating cake with peanut butter and ketchup. It says he ignored his own he had ignored his own child to feed his vision of himself. He saw the clear-eyed devil, the sounder of hearts, leering at him from the eyes of Johnson. His image of himself shriveled until everything was black before him. He sat there paralyzed, aghast. Lame, right? Exactly. Yeah. I wrote the word lame. It says he saw Norton at the telescope, all back and ears, saw his arms shoot up and wave frantically. A rush of agonizing love for the child rushed over him like a transfusion of life. The boy, little boy's face appeared to him transformed, the image of his salvation, all light. He groaned with joy. He would make everything up to him. He would never let him suffer again. He would be mother and father. He jumped up and ran to his room to kiss him, to tell him that he loved him, that he would never fail him again. And he's not, he's not in the room. He's upstairs in, in where the telescope is. Now, of course, this is where, if this were a Seinfeld episode, the telescope would be like the golf ball in the marine biologist. What he wouldn't give to put, a, put his hands on a telescope. 
The mm-hmm. telescope is the means of destruction, of redemption, of conclusion, of beginning. It, it, it's amazing how loaded that one device is in this story because uh, Shepard is so determined to get Rufus to think about the 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 heavens, so to speak, right? The the outer space, the 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 stars, the galaxy. Like looking through a telescope is the means by which he thinks Rufus will be saved. Go. Don't you think in a stereotypical modern story, it would have ended with him realizing that instead of longing to put the telescope in Rufus's hands, he needed to put it in his son's hands all along. And then they, he ends up realizing that all the happiness he needed was right there at home all along and he needed to take care of his own son. There's a certain type of modern story that just replaces one idol for another, I think, and says, family, you're, you're true, your own family. That's the most important thing in life. And then that's what you need to come back to at the end of the story for a happy ending. And the story clearly doesn't go there. But I do agree that the part you just read has a real ambiguity as to whether Shepard is just replacing one idol with another and realizing, you know how I really feel good about myself is if I'm a great father. I'm father and mother to this boy. I'm going to redouble my efforts and I'll be a great father and I'll feel loving toward my son. That's doomed to failure. That feeling would wear off the feelings of frustration for his son would come rushing back at some point. That's not, that's a dead end. Whereas I do think there's a possibility because he's been so deeply humbled and his image of himself Mm -hmm. has has crumbled. There's still an openness. Maybe once he sees that his son has died, that he will be crushed so deeply that maybe he'll finally be able to be humble enough to have a, a moment of grace. I think yeah. that possibility is left open, but it's not certain. Like you said, yeah, it makes me think of um, the two summer reading books that I often have taught over the years: um, "The End of the Affair" by Graham Greene and "Till We Have Faces" by C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. They both have a certain kind of emphasis on this idea that C.S. Lewis articulates in The Four Loves, which is that loving anything can open you up to the love of God if it's really love, Um, that true love is self-sacrificial, gets your mind off yourself. If you open yourself up, he says, even to love for a pet Mm -hmm. or your child, it's it's like a doorway to God's love entering your life. So if Shepherd is actually sort of opening himself up to a self-sacrificing love, and he, he realizes how deeply he's hurt and betrayed his son, maybe he can be like opened up to God's love. That's certainly how it functions. And say the end of the affair, mm-hmm. I think there's a sense that Sarah, the character, is in an adulterous affair, but she sacrifices her own happiness for the safety and well-being of her lover and, and leaves him and opens her heart up to God. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So we are going to backtrack and talk about <laughs> Norton and Rufus uh, in a second, but let's just talk about this ending. So Norton is upstairs, not at the telescope, which is like Whitney said, this would have been the most kind of like sweet ending story 
Oh, he went upstairs and his son was looking through the telescope and he realized, oh, that's what I wanted all along was my son to care about the things that matter to me. And yet, they don't have a telescope. He buys it when Rufus comes. He doesn't want his son. That That's what's so... Just the more you think about this story, the more you realize he doesn't want his son to be Rufus. He wants Rufus to be his son. And then when his son becomes more like Rufus, he, it's like, it says the light was on in Norton's room, but the bed was empty. He turned and dashed up the attic stairs and at the top reeled back like a man on the edge of a pit, which of course makes me think about the Pitts family in uh, A View of the Woods. The tripod had fallen and the telescope lay on the floor. A few feet over it, the child hung in the jungle of shadows just below the beam from which he had launched his first flight, sorry, his flight into space. It's, it's portrayed delicately and euphemistically in a way that so much else in the story is not. Um, I must talk maybe to Honor Norton. You know, it's, ten, it's a little tender at the end toward yeah. Norton, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting that it says the jungle of shadows. Um, that the <laughs> This is so macabre that I'm saying this, but you know what? It's Flannery O'Connor, and I, I, I know if, she, <laughs> if she's listening from heaven right now, I know she is just wetting her pants laughing about this. Everything that rises must converge. He had to rise <laughs> to converge in faith. Because it says the jungle of shadows. She's used the woods and the trees so many times. And here is this shadowy uh, attic space. And that he has to be hanging from the beam to to be out of it. Like to rise above the shadows that govern this house. And I mean... Golly, just just that 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 there could be a redemptive act in a hanging, like I, you yeah. know, it, it's so it's so impossible to understand, and yet there's a beauty to it because you're like, it fits. Like you read the end of this story, and you're like, yeah, kind of, kind of goes like like you're not like Flannery. How could you? Like, that sounds horrifying and evil. To a person who doesn't believe in eternal life, though, that your life would be cut off that short. It does, I think. It's a jungle of mystery. You know, that's good. A few pages earlier, I'm going to read a short section. Yeah. Um, Norton, Shepard said, Do you know where Rufus went? The child's back was to him. He was sitting hunched, intent, his large ears directly above his shoulders. Suddenly, he waved his hand and crouched closer to the telescope, as if he could not get near enough to what he saw. Norton, Shepard said in a loud voice. The child didn't move. Norton, Shepard shouted. That almost, uh, pause there, that almost foreshadows, like, it's like Norton, Norton, and Norton doesn't move and doesn't move. It foreshadows the end. There are so many foreshadows yeah. that he's going to die. Yeah. But it says, Norton started. He turned around. There was an unnatural brightness about his eyes. That unnatural brightness is used a couple of times in the story. It's like a spiritual awakening, I think. Um, it says, after a moment, he seemed to see that it was Shepard. I found her, he said breathlessly. Found who? Shepard said. Mama. Shepard steadied himself in the doorway. The jungle of shadows around the child thickened. So just like Shepard almost falls down at the very end, he almost falls down here. The jungle of shadows around the child thickened made me just think of 
what Norton is seeing and experiencing and how he's seeing the world is so mysterious. Something like a normal forest isn't like dark and thick and tangled enough or exotic enough to capture it. So she used the jungle as her imagery, which is a little bit of an unusual image for, for Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The very beginning of section two, it says Shepherd's attic was a large unfinished room with exposed beams and no electric light. Now, I said it seems incidental that it says they're exposed beams. And yet, we know now why Flannery added that detail. And, you know, I'm thinking about this, no electric light. It's, it's, a, it's primitive. Like it's, it's like the kind of place where Rufus's grandfather lives. And it says, a large unfinished room with the exposed beams and no electric light. They had set the telescope up on a tripod in one of the dormer windows. Now... Let me just say, dormer windows, if they do not have a room behind them, are lame. <laughs> I, I, I just, the, the, the idea of putting fake second story onto the outside of your house is so vain. And so, I mean, it, it's just such a, it's such a, it's such a joke. It's like, why on earth would anyone do that? And yet I've stayed in a place that had a dormer window. And, you know, I mean, it's just, at least if you have dormer windows that have room behind them, at least they're, they're windows to the second floor. And so at least there is room behind these windows. But to me, a house with dormer windows is a house that's a one-story house pretending to be a two-story house. And uh, I say that with all love to 3816 Hilldale Drive, which is where my mother still lives and my brother. Um, but just the dormer window to me is, is a touchy subject. But I thought it was hilarious that Flannery <laughs> included that because it says it pointed now toward the dark sky where a sliver of moon as fragile as an eggshell, which is her similes are so good in every story, but I thought the, the similes in this were the funniest of any of them. Had just emerged from behind a cloud with a brilliant silver edge. Inside, a kerosene lantern set on a trunk cast their shadows upward and tangled them, wavering slightly in the joists overhead. Oh, like the wavering and tangles. That sounds like a jungle. Yeah. Wavering and tangled also kind of sounds like someone wavering from, you know, hanging on a beam. It says, Shepard was sitting on a packing box looking through the telescope and Johnson was at his elbow waiting to get at it. Shepard had bought it for $15 two days before at a pawn shop. Quit hogging it, Johnson said. (laughs) Such a jerk. (laughs) Shepard got up and Johnson slid onto the box and put his eye to the instrument. Shepard sat down on a straight chair a few feet away. His face was flushed with pleasure. This much of his dream was a reality. Within a week, he had made it possible for the boy's, this boy's vision to pass through a slender channel to the stars. He looked at Johnson's bent back with complete satisfaction. The boy had on one of Norton's plaid shirts and some new khaki trousers he had bought him. The shoe would be ready next week. He had taken him to the brace shop the day after he came and had had him fitted for a new shoe. Johnson was as touchy about the foot as if it were a sacred object. His face had been glum white. So his face had been glum, while the clerk, a young man with a bright 
pink bald head measured the foot with his profane hands. Now, <laughs> the shoe was going to make the greatest difference in the boy's attitude. Even a child with, a nor with normal feet was in love with the world after he got a new pair of shoes. <laughs> when Norton got a new pair, he walked around for days with his eyes on his feet. Now, that made me think about Mary Fortune looking at her feet. And this idea of, like, Norton gets new shoes and he's, like, looking at his feet... Is he praying? Is he like thanking God that he oh, has new yeah. shoes? Or like, Mary Fortune's like looking at her feet, walking, looking at her feet and mumbling. Yeah. Yeah. It also made me, of course, this section made me think of um, Joy Holga from Good Country People. Yes. Treating her, um, you know, whatever you call it, her false limb yeah. like a sacred object yeah. that she never lets anyone touch and it's desecrated by someone touching it. Now, Here's where it gets interesting. It says, Shepard glanced across the room at the child, meaning Norton. He was sitting on the floor against a trunk, trussed up in a rope he had found and wound around his legs from his ankles to his knees. So sad. I mean, he's la laming himself and also, yeah. of course, foreshadowing. Yet again, foreshadowing. But I thought it was interesting. That's exactly where Flannery's affliction was. Obviously, she, she didn't have a club foot. She had lupus, but it affected her feet. But Norton is the one who is mirroring Flannery's uh, affliction more than Rufus, necessarily. And I just thought that was interesting that he was, like, he was, he was afflicting himself. Not that Flannery chose to get lupus, but it's like Norton is actually a connection to Flannery in this moment. And I, this is where the, 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 the death at the end, I thought was really powerful. Like I was like getting real teary eyed thinking about this. Flannery knows she's going to die at this point. This is published, I think originally in 1962 and she dies in 64, but she knows her lupus is, is severely hindering her. And I was thinking, Oh, you know, he's, he's getting this like rope wrapped around his legs, the way that the rope is eventually going to kill him. Just like the lupus is affecting her ankles to her knees and, and she knows that that will eventually kill her too and and that like he dies in the end but the implication is he's going to Jesus he's going to heaven and that here is Flannery writing a story about someone that's about to die and and I just I know that she's connecting somehow to the, the emotions of the story and it's interesting to think like She's grieving her dad dying of lupus, you know, when she, I think she's uh, 16 when he died. And, you know, by the time she's 36, 37, when this is coming out, she's the one that has lupus. And so here's a character who's grieving a parent that's died who's also going to die. And I just thought it was really powerful to think about Norton, you know, just just being that close to death and not knowing it. And yet... Being, being that close to heaven and returning to his mom, and and I think this idea of like, I think the mom must have had faith. That that's that's my reading of the story. That's just a, a pure interpretation. But I I think that the mom had faith, but it wasn't communicated well to Norton. Maybe 
out of respect to Shepard, who was like, I don't believe in this stuff, but maybe she was like going to church by herself or something like that. Yeah, because Norton says she believes in Jesus all the time. I heard her say she did all the time. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Um, and, you know, it's hard to tell. Is right, Norton saying right. that? Because that's what he wants to believe, because he's being told that that's a very important part of his mother being in heaven. But there's at least, you know, that assertion from Norton that his mother said she believed in Jesus all the time. And that, like, she seemed to be this, like, incredibly fruitful, flourishing person that let Shepard and Norton flourish as well. And Norton's got these seeds and I think the seeds have, have got to be significant because th- there's that, um, the, the um, epigraph from uh, the Brothers Karamazov that's like, unless a seed dropped from the, do you remember it? I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's like. Yeah, unless a seed um, falls to the ground and dies, it, it basically it's Jesus saying that a seed is like a metaphor for what has to happen to him and to us is that we have to, to die to live. And, yeah. you know, you're just a seed that needs to fall to the ground and the seed dies, but the plant is born out yeah. of the seed and yeah. it's a much greater flourishing. And so I, I thought about that, um, you know, this idea of like, he's got all these seeds. He seems to be interested in, um, even though his, his dad's like, he's just going to be, a, you know, have a loan company. It seems like he actually is really interested in like things of the earth and growing and, and flourishing and not just like, loving money like I don't get the impression if if Norton was a uh, like owner of a small loan company that he would just be this really like miserly person I think he might just be like I'm really good at making money and and I I want to loan you money so that you can do what you need to do with it and that'll be my way of making money the same way that you're going to make money doing whatever you do you know so um I don't think that it's inherently wrong to you know work at a bank or work at a loan company or investment bank or, you know, like be a stock trader or something like that. If you're doing it for God's glory, if you're doing it because you love money, that, that will become evident probably pretty quickly because you'll get really angry every time the money isn't coming in. And, you know, Norton never seems to get angry in the story. He's, he's just scared sometimes, right? The one thing we know about him, other than that he does like money, you know, is that he's affectionate. Yeah. I mean, you see him be affectionate toward his mother. Yeah. His mother's memory. Um, he's he's beckoning toward Shepard several times, like, come here, come here, kind of come to me, you know, trying to draw mm-hmm. Shepard in. I would say he's even affectionate toward Rufus once he gets used to Rufus. Um, he seems to have just a natural instinct mm-hmm. toward affection. Now... This is talking about, um, this, this, this is him talking with Rufus. That's why I wanted to kind of end with it. Um, it says, um, uh, while you boys may be spacemen, astronauts, astronauts, Johnson said, nuts or nots, it's perfectly possible <laughs> that you, Rufus Johnson, will go to the moon. And it says something in the depths of Johnson's eyes stirred. All day his humor had been glum. I ain't going to the moon and get there alive, he said, and when I die, I'm going to hell. It's at least possible to get to the moon, Shepard said dryly. The best way to handle this kind of thing was with gentle ridicule. We can see it. We know it's there. 
Nobody has given any reliable evidence there's a hell. The Bible has given the, ev- has given the evidence, Johnson said darkly, and if you die and go there, you'll burn forever. The child leaned forward. Whoever says it ain't a hell, Johnson said, is contradicting Jesus. The dead are judged and the wicked are damned. They weep and gnash their teeth while they burn, he continued, and it's everlasting darkness. The child's mouth opened. His eyes appeared to grow hollow. Satan runs it, Johnson said. Norton lurched up and took a hobbled step toward Shepard. Is she there? He said in a loud voice. Is she there burning up? He kicked the rope off his feet. Is she on fire? Oh my God, Shepard muttered. No, no, of course she isn't. Rufus is mistaken. Your mother isn't anywhere. She's not unhappy. She just isn't. And I think that that's what's so powerful about this story is here's Norton sitting there with the rope wrapped around his feet and he kicks it off because the notion of heaven and hell is more important than him just being kind of like wrapped in his own, um, you know, grief or sorrow or, or, or unhappiness or whatever. Um, and, and it really, I feel like that's what starts the process of him coming to faith is what happened to mom. And Rufus, <laughs> uh, it says, is she there, Rufus? Is she there burning up? Johnson's eyes glittered. <laughs> well, he said, she is if she was evil. Was she a whore? <laughs> Your mother was not a whore, Shepard said sharply. It says, did she believe in Jesus? And then it says, Norton looked blank. After a second, he said, yes, as if he saw that this was necessary. She did, he said, all the time. She did not, Shepard muttered. She did all the time. I heard her say she did all the time. She saved, Johnson said. The child still looked puzzled. Where? Where is she at? On high. Where's that? In the sky somewhere, but you don't. You got to be dead to get there. You can't go in no spaceship. That's why I think the ending of this is, it it's clear and convoluted at the same time. Is is Norton understanding faith? I don't know. I don't think he. I don't think he really is. Certainly not like oh, he's really you know, he's really well versed in the theology of scripture like. I think he's just yeah. going on pure faith that death is the way to connect to people in a deeper way than life. And certainly Rufus doesn't present the gospel in a clear-eyed way. He's connecting it to being in in and of yourself a good or evil person to some degree, right? Like he's confusing faith in Jesus with, well, was she a good person or a bad person? Yeah. You know, that will determine where she goes. He's, he's just not... Actually, that part where he says, I ain't going to the moon and get there alive, and when I die, I'm going to hell, um, reminded me of Jane Eyre, (laughs) which is my favorite book and our daughter's middle names, namesake. But um, Hey, Josephine. In Jane Eyre, um, in the beginning, she's questioned by this man named Mr. Brocklehurst who runs this charity school she's going to go to, and he says, where will you go when you die? Um, and she says, I guess I'll go to hell. And he says, well, what can you do to avoid going there? And she says, I guess I have to make sure I don't get sick so I don't die. 
she doesn't understand. She's been told she's a bad little girl, you know, a reprobate, and that she might go to hell. She doesn't understand how to avoid it. She doesn't understand the gospel. Rufus is a little more advanced than that. He understands the gospel a lot more, but he's just not ready to submit to it yet. He knows he could, but he's not ready. Um, so, he, But he has a kind of clear-eyed sense that he will go to hell if he dies in his current unrepentant state. I think yeah. Jane Eyre had a not clear-eyed sense of that, but um, that book, too, is kind of an exploration about a girl who has had a really difficult life and is kind of just living according her, her to her selfish impulses until she... Um, is shocked by the friend, the death of her friend Helen, who, who thinks differently into yeah. seeing the world a different way. You know, there are just so many things to talk about in this this story. We're right at two hours now, um, but one of the things that we haven't talked about is, I mean, we've talked about Flannery O'Connor's um, style a lot in all the stories, so it's not like we're bringing this up for the first time, but. On my page 174, this is in the second section, it says, After this, the road with Johnson would be smooth. And that's a one-sentence paragraph. Then it says, Norton sat up and beckoned to him. And that's another one-sentence paragraph. It's like in those two sentences are the arrogance that, like, I will fix this person. And the negligence of, I don't need, you know... (laughs) It says, good night, I understand, good night, son, when he's talking to Rufus. And he, like, doesn't want to talk to Norton because he's like, oh, this will break Rufus's trust in me. And uh, it's, it's just, I don't know. There's so much to it. And interestingly, as, as Rufus starts to introduce Christianity to, to Norton, they start reading the Bible together. And Norton seems to be really... Uh, earnestly interested and in, in, in desiring relationship. And I think, you know, that's the challenge is what he really wants is the, the relationship with his mom. But what is true about Christianity is if you have a relationship with God, you have a relationship with someone better than your mom or better than your dad. You have a heavenly father that is eternal and that can know you better and can provide for you better and can never leave you the way that you do have to let go of your your parent at a you know at some point and and you know i i love my parents i hope that josephine loves me <laughs> you know i hope josephine's kids love her but but i i just i think that it is a, it is a great abuse of people maybe the, you know maybe the greatest of all to not show them that God is the ultimate best parent to have. And that's why um, all the prayers that Jesus gives in the New Testament start with Father, except for the, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, that's the only time I'm pretty sure um, that he refers to God as God instead of Father, because he's, you know, he is his father, but that, that in that moment, right when he's dying on the cross, he is separated from his father, the father-son relationship, and he has to relate to him the way we have to, which is as a sinner, because he's taking on the sins on the cross. 
And so I thought that was really interesting about like the way, the way that Norton, you know, connects is he's really looking for what we need, which is spiritual parentage. And the way to get that is not some sort of, um, oh, well, my, my, um, you know, spiritual parentage is Flannery O'Connor or is, you know, Vincent Van Gogh or is Fyodor Dostoevsky or who, or is even like, you know, John the Baptist or, or King David or whatever. It's like, if God is not your spiritual parent, then anyone short of that will let you down and be unsatisfying. Now, Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky and Van Gogh and, you know, David and John the Baptist, etc., they're my spiritual brethren, you know, they're, they're my kin spiritually. And that's why I connect so much to Flannery O'Connor. It's like, I feel like when I, when I read this story, it was like, it was like hearing the song the first time when you're like, how is there a song this tailor made for me? I'll just name drop one of them. My Lost Soprano by the Iron Skirts. When I heard that song the first time, it was like, well, I'm going to love these guys because this song is just the best. Um, shout out to, to Jay Gully, Philip Brantley, Jojo Glywell, and John Swint. Um, but just that when we, when we connect to something, whether it's emotionally, whether it's uh, intellectually, whether it's physically, whether it's um, nostalgically, or whether it's spiritually, there's just a sense of connection and communion. And I, I felt like this story just just brought me all the way in, and I was inside this person's mind. And it's, it's interesting that we're inside Shepard's mind the whole story rather than Rufus's mind or, or Norton's, um, because I think that Flannery, just like I do, has the hardest time connecting to someone that denies God because you're denying my father exists. It's like, I exist because my father exists. But um, that's, you know, that's where this story is kind of centered is in this, like, does God exist? Is God our father or is he just a a judgmental, you know, wrathful uh, deity that's not, that, that we can't have a personal connection to? You know, reading the end of the story and thinking about that question, does Norton have a faith that understands enough? Is he too confused um, for his faith to have efficacy? I mean, it just makes me think of a few things, like the verse, love covers over a multitude of sins. I think that there's something in Norton that's loving, um, that God has a tenderness for, you know, he's got the rudiments of faith and he, um, like I think of the moment where Norton says in a pleading voice, repent, Rufus, repent here. You don't want to go to hell. Repent. Like he cares about Rufus too. He's not just, just selfish. And he, you know, what Johnson says in response to that is if I do repent, I'll be a preacher. If you're going to do it, there's no sense in doing it halfway. It's similar to what the misfit says and a good man is hard to find. But um, I do think there's enough solid truth being offered by Rufus, regardless of Rufus's motives. And there's enough just like love and sincerity in Norton's motives that that all of that is 
is, is reassuring. And I remember that God is kinder and more merciful than, than any person is and knows better yeah. than any person knows. Well, it's interesting that you bring that example up from the story. Uh, the very first thing that Shepard wants Norton to do is learn to share. And in that, Norton is trying to share. I, maybe he does have faith in that point, and he's like, don't, you know, don't go to hell, Rufus. Like, I want, I, I want to share heaven with you um, because he, he, he's going to have to share heaven with his mom if his mom is there. And so there's that, that natural sense of, like, if you're in Christ, you're, you're, you're driven to share. You like to share. I mean, if anybody knows me, I like to share. <laughs> I'm certainly sharing my thoughts on this story. But um, I, I just, I'm always up for, you know. I mean, there was one time I literally <laughs> was in a Starbucks drive through and the guy that was giving us the drinks was like, oh, that's a nice shirt. And I almost took it off my back and just handed it through the drive through That's how, like, but I needed I just, I had to have a shirt on for the drive home. Um, but next time I come through the uh, Manchester, Tennessee, Starbucks, I'll, I'll just give it to you, man. Um, but, but just, I, I love to share because I know how much has been shared with me. And when I'm not sharing, when I'm, when I'm, you know, more miserly, that's because my heart's not in the right place. It's not because, oh, you're being wise to not, you know. And, and um, that was what the, the Tim Keller sermon on, on uh, Lazarus and the rich man kind of ended on was like, how do you treat the poor, not just the, the, the monetarily poor, but how do you treat people who are poor in something that you are rich in? And I try to, you know, everything that I'm rich in, I try to share. Like one of the things that I'm rich in is <laughs> swimming knowledge. <laughs> and I wake up two times a week to go coach people, you know, just volunteer coaching uh, because I love seeing people get better at swimming, you know? And um, it's just such a good feeling, not in a way that like, oh, this is saving me, but just to know that I'm, I'm giving something that, that God has given me to someone else and they're going to, they're going to be able to give it to someone else. And, um, I think that Rufus is sharing faith with Norton, but Rufus is just such a conflicted character. And he's really like, I mean, that, I think that's why this story bears so much similarity to the violent buried away is Flannery O'Connor really wanted to make a novel out of this guy, but I think it works better as a short story with Shepard being the central character rather than a novel with, you know, Tarwater being the main character, um, you know, in, in The Violent Bared Away. Um, but just just the power of this story, like I said, I you know, I found it funny in a way. I mean, the fact that, that Rufus refers to um, to Shepard as himself with a capital H, that is something that David Foster Wallace uses in Infinite Jest. They call the, the dad, James Incandenza, himself. And Mario Incandenza, the youngest boy of the family, has a club foot and has this, like, grotesquely overshaped shoe. And so I know that David Foster Wallace was you know, paying homage to Flannery O'Connor with, with those details. Um, and, and Dave Foswaller is also someone who is very intent on being hilarious, but being really deep 
uh, having a deep emotional experience uh, reading his work. His work is, it's more, it takes more gymnastics, you know. Um, I mean, (laughs) I just, it it is like walking on a, on a balance beam that's on fire. Um, But it's, it's funny, but it's also just, it's so challenging in a way that Flannery is not, you know, she's challenging in different ways. Her prose is not challenging, but, but what I think is challenging with her writing is catching everything, like catching every single Easter egg that she puts in the story rather than discerning what she means. Like her, her, it's very plain spoken in that way. It lulls you into complacency and then you don't notice how artfully crafted it really is sometimes. Yeah. And, and really, if there is a, if, if there's a, you know, a true victim in this story, it's the shoe. That shoe never gets to get on, on Rufus's foot, or at least not, not in the terms of, in, in, in the scope of the story itself. One of my favorite moments, just to end on a high note or, you know, a happy note, uh, is when they're at the shoe store and... <sighs> Oh, gosh. Where is it? Why can't I find it? Um, it sa- the guy says, um, you won't walk with this. You'll glide. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that what he says? He also says, with this shoe, you won't know you're walking. That's You'll think it. you're riding. You'll think you're riding. And just that. And see if that ain't a power glide. <laughs> yes. You'll think you're riding. And it just makes me think about, like, the shoe doesn't save you. It just makes you think you're equal. And, and I think that equality is a huge thing in this world. But are we truly equal outside of God's grace? No. I mean, maybe we're equally sinful. Right, in, in right. Indeed. I mean, because I was thinking about the fact that that old shoe and his foot are so grotesquely described. And it says, he removed the old shoe as if he were skinning an animal still half alive. <laughs> like, it's just disgusting. But I think God loves the reality of who we are, and he sees us for what we are and loves us anyway because he sees the other worthy things in us too, and he can just have that double vision. Um, what the story is about is a character who's trying to pretend that there's no such thing as evil and grotesquery mm-hmm. and try to hide it away um, under this nice new shiny shoe. And basically Rufus says, no, you're not hiding it. It's part of me. It's who I am. Um, only God can really see and accept us as his children. In the same way, as a, it's a great metaphor being God's child because when you are dealing with your own child and you're dealing with things that are just gross about their bodies. They don't really seem that disturbing to you. You might yeah. be a, like a little grossed out, but it's not the same level of grossed out you'd be even for your own bodily fluids or yeah. certainly not for someone else's. And God, we're all God's children and he sees our, our weaknesses and deformities and just the, the, the low gross things about us and just totally loves and accepts us. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that... It says, it was a black, slick, shapeless object 
shining hideously. It looked like a blunt weapon, highly polished. And just in that one, that, so that's a two-sentence uh, paragraph, real short. Black was such a, like, I mean, it's always been, like, a Vogue color, but it's, like, in the 50s and 60s, like, something that was, like, sleek and black. It's, like, very modernist, minimalist, like, you know, oh, that looks, you know, that that's the future right there is, like, the, you know, Darth Vader or, you know, the Empire, whatever. And slick, this idea of it's slick, it's, it's you know, there's something to it that looks like it's fancy, but it's really not. It's shapeless. It's just an object, and it's shining, but it's hideous. And so, just a blunt weapon, highly polished, is exactly what the philosophy that governs Shepard is. Mm, it's like a bomb or something. Exactly. A blunt weapon, highly polished, is what secular human humanism is. It's a blunt weapon that people use on each other. And and we mentioned this, I think, in one of the other ones. We'll mention it again now. Flannery O'Connor saw the, the natural end of, like, liberal do-goodery without the gospel as, you know, sending people to the concentration camps in the gas chamber. That, like, in the name of progress, in the name of humanity, in the name of, you know, righting the wrongs, you know, we'll execute these people and it will be, be good. ruthless against people who don't yeah. get it. What would improve society? Yeah. And so, just the way the way that this shoe sale goes, it says Shepard's face was bright with pleasure. Johnson stood up and walked a few yards away. He walked stiffly with almost no dip in his short stride, short side. He stood for a moment, rigid, with his back to them. Wonderful. Shepard said, wonderful. It was as if he had given the boy a new spine. And, and that's, that's pride. It's pride to think that you can give someone that's a quadriplegic a new spine or give someone that has a club foot, a, you know, restore their foot or whatever it is. And yet in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he does actually restore people. He does restore the paralyzed and the club-footed. And, and the, the lame are the ones that come to him because they're the ones that know they need him. And I think that in grief, you're more likely to know you need God than when you're not in grief. And yet, here's Shepherd denying God even exists when he's actually the most fertile for the seeds of faith. And so Norton does blossom with the seeds of faith but in a way that I would say it's like that like um, the young uh, when you're young you want to die valiantly for the faith when you're old you want to live humbly for the faith and he, he's like the, the, the epitome of that like dying in faith like I said almost like annihilated um He's a sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't yes, have a real yes, shepherd, yes. either his father or Rufus. He gets just enough information to point him in a direction, but he doesn't have a true shepherd. So he's wandering, yeah. you know. Now, the the grandfather seems to be a bit of a kook, but I think that's yet another good example of the grandfather is not shepherding Rufus, and maybe he could be the right shepherd for Norton to teach him about the faith. 
and yet he's out, you know. Yeah. The, it's he's like, abdicated that responsibility. Yeah, it's like fl- Flannery is kind of like pox on all your houses. Like, don't be so fundamentalist that you, like, are, are you know, a, a survivalist waiting for the end times. Don't be so um, kind of, like, uh, down on yourself that you're like, you know, Jesus can't save me. I'm too wicked, um, you know, and, and don't don't kill yourself with the faith literally or metaphorically. Like, I, I think that some people can can burn out their faith by being too faith not 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 saying too faithful in a pejorative way, but by trying to over exercise their faith, it'd be like trying to over exercise your body. You can actually die from like trying to swim too far or trying to run too far. Like run every day, swim every day, whatever it is, like exercise your faith every day so that when you're old you can teach someone like Rufus how to know God and not how to be like at odds with God. Like, mm-hmm. it feels like he's, he knows God and he knows how to be saved, but he's choosing to wait, whereas Norton seems to actually come to the faith more yeah. more immediately. He goes unwisely too far to an extreme. Like, the sermon that we heard on Sunday at church was about this idea of punishing your body. It was basically, in Hebrews, the writer saying, don't obsess over your body to the point of punishing your body and being ascetic. Um, focus on eternal things and spiritual things. Don't get obsessed with your body. And I think there's been a tendency of some people to want to say, I'm going to be very self-depriving as a way of showing my faith. I'm going to exercise my faith to an extreme. And it's like, you know, everyday life actually, just resisting sin and, and trying to follow God provides enough opportunities to exercise your faith without you having to make a martyr of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to some degree, yeah, Norton unknowingly, childlikely, childishly, he does make a martyr of himself. And I don't think that's in any way celebrated in the story. It's a tragedy that he didn't understand that there was a, a life ahead of him full right. of possibility um, that God still had for him because he didn't have a shepherd to yeah. help him understand. Well, and I think that's that's kind of where Flannery O'Connor steps in as the, the Catholic that there is the Catholic Church, and I, what I mean by that is the universal, you know, the, the church on earth that is the body of Christ. Um, obviously, we refer to the Catholic Church meaning like the Roman Catholic Church, but just, I just mean the overall church that has theology, it has tradition, it has how to be a living saint instead of a dead saint. And so, um, you know, the, that idea of like, what does life on earth look like when you're in a relationship with Christ? Well, you know, you need you need scripture for that. You need the church for that. You need other Christians for that. You can't get to it on your own intuition. Um, and maybe that's part of what she's saying about like the 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 kind of like backwoodsy Christianity that Rufus is is bringing to the house is it 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 saves Norton but it saves him at a cost instead of saving him to, to flourish, uh, the household. It's like, it's like, it saves him, but you know, life you say may be your own. And then, then shepherds left alone in the house, dead wife, dead son. Rufus is gone for good. 
Maybe that's why Norton needed a, a catechism. He needed something yeah. that was a proved truth that he yeah. could just, that, that was kind of straightforward. He questions answers because we know that Flannery O'Connor had some, some suspicion of these, which, you know, kind of backwards fundamentalist preachers yeah. who were potentially misapplying scripture, misunderstanding right. scripture. Um, I think to to a degree she's right that there's just a danger for an untrained amateur trying to do it alone, un- understanding scripture right. to seriously misunderstand. Now, Bevel in the river, I think, is legit. Like, he he's preaching the gospel, um, but he's living the gospel and preaching the gospel. I think Little Bevel... You know, little Harry Bevel. fake Bevel yeah. is like five years old. Right, he's too, right. really too young to understand abstract concepts and theology well. Whereas ten is very different from five. Yeah, and I mean, I was I was ten when I was baptized, and I I think that you can you can put your faith in a, a being like an actual you know you've known enough beings at that point to be able to put your faith in a being of God like God the 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 person rather than God, the kind of uh, concept, right? Like God is not just a concept at that point. He's real in a personal way that I think a five-year-old struggles to understand. Um, not to say that you can't have genuine faith at five. I think you can. Um, and I think it's a great thing if you do. I think that, you know, what's sad about faith is that people that have what you would call a boring testimony, really what they have is a blessing. They're blessed that they have generations of faithful people. And I've, I've had, you know, faithful people in my family that I think helped me, um, you know, through their own faithfulness to, to not go down a, a lengthy path of non-belief to the point now where I, I have no doubt at all. Um, and, you know, I hope that every Christian can get to that same point where they just say, I trust God 100% of the time, 100% of the way. And um, Flannery certainly does that. And that's why I think these stories are so powerful. And this one in particular was so powerful to me because here is someone who trusts God at 0.0% shepherd. And at the end of the story, he's trying to close his eyes to the revelation, but it's there. And, and so I think, you know, in the end of life, the proud will be humbled. You know, the, 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 the mighty will be crushed. But the lame, you know, this idea of the lame shall enter. The lame shall come to heaven. And that's because if you notice your lameness, if you acknowledge your lameness, if you, if you say, I'm poor in spirit and I need something to enrich me, well, nothing will enrich you ultimately except for Jesus. And uh, Flannery certainly shows that in this story, but it's almost like I kind of got the impression that this story was more about converting the reader than about converting Norton. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like it, it was a means to an end to preach, where some of these stories don't, they're much more parabolic, like they're much more like parables parabolas <laughs> they're they're much more um morality plays or parables or things like that it was this this didn't feel like a morality play it didn't i i kept trying to think what who who does this person represent or who and it doesn't it it really doesn't uh 
it doesn't translate to that. I think it's just much more of a human story about the 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 material and the spiritual world in, in one story. What happens to Norton seems like the final wreckage of Shepard's choices and attitudes. Um, the final, the reckoning the yes. of, of all yeah. the, the ways that he's been toward his son. And it's shown with redemption and, and hope and pity for Norton, in my opinion. But it also, there's a natural an extreme, but a but a sort of natural consequence to this this deep evil that she's yeah, portraying yeah. in Shepherd, um, who treated his son that way. Yeah, and and that there's something you can do worse than kill your child, and it's to it's it's to deceive your child. You know that 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 deceit and theft are actually really the pride is going to be the beginning point of all sin, but that murder is not the first thing that's going to come to mind. It's going to be deceit. It's going to be theft. And that's where you see the Garden of Eden, like Satan deceives Adam and Eve that taking something that they're not supposed to take is fine and that it's coming from a a point of pride, like they want to be like God instead of letting God be God and letting them be, you know, stay stay. Uh, trusting of him for the knowledge of good and evil, and yeah, Rufus is is it's like he knows the he knows the good and evil, but he's not committed. It's almost like he's like Satan has me, but I know how to get away from him. And yet, yeah, the one that gets away from Satan is is um, Norton. It's not it's not Rufus, and so you know Flannery just tells this story. That's so complex, and and yet, I mean, you know, it's it's simple enough that I think anyone with like a pretty basic reading level could read it, but but we still don't understand it. We, you know, we've been reading her stories all all summer and thinking about them deeply and reading <laughs> secondary articles about them and everything. Um, but that's that's part of what I think Flannery is tapping into, which is the depth of the creativity of God. And using the multiple layers that she sees in Christ's own teaching to try and teach through her stories as well, and so I think this one is maybe uh, instructive in a different way. But I think I think, like I said, I think it is more about trying to catch the attention of the reader, not as an observer, but actually, if you relate to Shepherd, you know, be careful. It's like. You know, if if you think, oh, well, there's no such thing as hell, it's like, well, think again. Jesus said there is, you know, and one of one, one of you is right, and Jesus was raised from the dead, and so, you know, that's why there's Christianity two thousand years later, and the people that deny hell, you know, they come and go, and so, you know, this story, the lame children at first, you may feel lame. If you're like, oh man, I'm lame because I'm a Christian, and I'm lame because you know I was raised in the church, or you know my grandparents, you know, are faithful believers, or whatever it is, but it's actually one of the best things that could ever happen to you um, is to be exposed to it. And you know, we both hope that you know listening to, to us talk about these stories helps you to want a relationship with God, and and. <laughs> um, I just lost his name. Ralph Wood said, if you read the letters of Flannery O'Connor, she will save your soul. And I think 
she will point you to the need for the saving of your soul, but you won't be saved by, you know, Flannery O'Connor. You'll be saved by Jesus. But I think his heart's in the right place, meaning her faith is so evident in her letters that you can't help but want the relationship with God that she has. And um, that's, you know, that's what's at the center of this story, especially of, of all the ones that we've read. It's about a relationship. You know, it's about relationships between the father and the son and the father, and you know, the, the, the adoptive father and the adoptive son and, and the brothers and um, the mother and the son, the mother and the, uh, you know, the, the wife, husband and the wife. Um, but ultimately, the most important relationship in the whole story is is the relationship that each character has with Jesus, and you know, in the end, only one has it, and he's he's with Jesus at the end, and so, you know, it's it's powerful, it's sobering. I think it's hilarious. I think the reason I thought it was so funny was because she went out of her way to make the funniest story the most sobering one, and so the humor hits harder, but it's also more. I don't want to say bleak, but it is it is it is very sobering in a way that some of these other ones are like. And then she got gored by a bull. Come on, man, that doesn't happen, right? But it's like this, you know, this doesn't seem like it would happen either. And yet, the the reality is, parents are leading their kids astray by not telling telling them about God every day. Any any final thoughts on Lamshell and her first one? I don't think so. I think we've we've said quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so we, you know, just just crossed the two hour and a half mark. Um, I knew we'd go along on this, but it's the longest story. So, um, you know, we're looking forward to discussing uh, Parker's back next, uh, and then we'll finish with Revelation and the Omega episode. Um, so we've got a few more left, but we're, we've appreciated your listening, and uh, hope hope you've gotten to go just as deep on Flannery Connor as we've gotten to go. Um, she's, you know. A deep well of of truth and and insight and humor uh, and and darkness, <laughs> but uh, but worth worth going to uh, and and we'll 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 join you again on the next episode with some with the deals. Bye.